0: Hey, everyone. This is Wayne, and this is the Green Pole Podcast. We're living in very difficult times, whether it's climate change, income inequality, the war in Ukraine. It feels like the world is falling apart, and so is our nation. And and that's why I think this conversation is an important one, because communication is crucial to understanding how to, to make progress. But so, too, is learning the lessons of successful political movements. And in recent history, political movement that inspired me more than any other one, uh, around the nation is is the Bernie revolution now. They didn't make it across the finish line. Obviously, Bernie's not our president and um, And I think there's a lot to learn from their mistakes but I think that the idea that a senator from a tiny state in the Northeast <laughs> who is a self-identified socialist <laughs> and is not an affiliated with either political party officially could somehow become the leading candidate for president of the United States is is a minor miracle. And Brianna Joy Gray is is going to tell us that story and tell the story about how she went from being a relatively unknown journalist to being Bernie's press secretary. But the other thing that Brianna is going to tell us about in this conversation is her view on identity politics and you know let's be clear as a black woman she obviously believes that racism and sexism exist in America and we got to do something about them. But she also has a very unique progressive about how identity politics too often is being used in these performative ways to actually undermine the very folks that supposedly it is going to defend, namely marginalized communities. Um, But I think you really should listen to Brianna herself because she speaks so brilliantly and eloquently. She's a lawyer, Harvard Law grad, former press secretary, journalist, and she's got her own podcast, which you should follow because she's absolutely fucking brilliant. So anyways... Here's Brianna. Brianna, I am so excited to have you on this podcast, and I've been following you for a long time. I first heard about you through Glenn Greenwald, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and my good buddy Layton has been saying amazing things about you, and so I started listening to your podcast a while back. It's fantastic. It's called The Bad Faith Podcast. Thank you. uh, One of the most interesting things about you, before I even get into what's so interesting about your substantive views, which are fascinating, because there are not many leftists taking some of the positions you're taking on, for example, identity politics, Mm. is your biography. Mm. Because in many ways, I would not expect you to be where you are. You are very much a gadfly (laughs) who's not in the mainstream at this point in the establishment.
1: Am I? Am I a gadfly? (laughs) I think you're a gadfly at this point. And
0: uh, actually, the first time I heard about you, I'm wrong. It wasn't through Glenn Greenwald. The first time I heard about you probably was when you broke with Bernie Sanders, because you're his former national press secretary.
2: And there was a little
0: bit of a... A public split about your lack of endorsement, or in fact, not even your lack of endorsement, your opposition to Joe Biden. But th-
1: yeah, th- yeah. That's so funny to me, by the way, because I think there is an expectation that people who work on campaigns, because they want to work on more campaigns and have a long political life in D.C., don't ever at any point feel a bit, the ability to express their own opinion kind of freely of what the campaign infrastructure does. And quite naively, I guess, I thought that, well, the campaign's over now. I can go back to saying what I really want to say without any filter whatsoever. I really honestly didn't think that my tweet, I thought it was pretty anodyne to say, okay, I, yeah. I have all due respect for Bernie Sanders, but I personally am not going to endorse Joe Biden until he makes certain commitments to progressives Yeah, in the middle of a pandemic where people were in an unprecedented number of crisis, crises, both yeah. economic and health. And yeah. that that was as controversial as it was and was characterized as this, you know, rebuke Betrayal. of right, like yeah, it, just, it was, intense. you know, we, you know and, and Bernie's response, which is that you know, we, you know, she doesn't work for me anymore, so you know, she can say what she wants, is kind of characterized as this rebuke, but it's just the truth.
0: Yeah, I felt like that <laughs> moment was such a metaphor for American politics in in how the establishment is trying to force to ex- accept the status quo instead yeah. of reimagine what's possible, and not even imagine, but let's go make it happen. You know, there's so many things we need yeah. to do. And for those of you who don't remember, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but this is what, in the summer of 2020, right? Yeah, when it would you,
1: have been April April 2020. 2020,
0: that's right, when after Super Tuesday and, and Bernie basically turns around and endorses Joe Biden. But it was incredibly intense. If you said anything negative about Joe Biden back then, as a leftist or as a Democrat, I don't even know if you identify as a Democrat, but anyone- um, yeah. I, I,
1: <laughs> I, When I lived in New York, I was a registered Democrat in what New York because they have closed primaries. Of course,
0: yeah. Same with California. You know, yeah. So I, I registered as a Democrat, so I could vote for Bernie, actually. Right. Um, but if you said anything, even the slightest bit, frankly, even neutral about Joe Biden on social media, people just jumped on you. And it was so intense. Yeah. And so you come out here, and not just as you know your everyday Twitter user, but as someone who is the national press secretary communicating Reformer. on behalf of Bernie Sanders. I was
1: no longer on the payroll. Yeah, <laughs> That's
0: you, the thing. <laughs> you got destroyed. I mean, people are going after you so hard.
1: Yeah, well, it's... It's interesting because I do very much see myself as a regular Twitter user. I'm not someone who kind of got a Twitter following because I was starring in some, you know, Marvel movie or, you know, the other ways that people get famous and then come to Twitter. I was... Your average, you know, five hundred follower account just a few years ago. Huh. You know, when people point to some of my tweets about, you know, Jill Stein and the two thousand sixteen election and say, you know, this was irresponsible. She had all this undue influence. I was like, I wish I had influence, but I, I maybe had a, a thousand followers by two thousand and seventeen. Yeah. You know, I, re- I vividly remember when I got my first five hundred, because it was, it, what had happened was, uh. What's his face? Oh gosh. Um, Steve Harvey had said something uh-huh. racist um, about Asian men and how nobody wanted to date them. And at the time, my boyfriend was Chinese American and we had just taken really fire New Year's pictures. And so I tweeted out, like, you're being an asshole mm-hmm. to him. And Eddie Wong retweeted my picture, uh-huh. and that got me my first 500 followers. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> like That was like the last 40 followers to put me yeah. over. Like So I vividly remember it was around New Year's of 2017 huh. Huh. that I even, you know. So the idea that I had any kind of influence sure. whatsoever is really laughable. And I think sometimes the way that I behave on the internet is very, I forget sometimes that anybody's listening sure. or yeah. watching. Sometimes that's a good thing, and obviously sometimes that gets me in hot water, but honestly, I think it's refreshing because look, the things that got me in, in trouble saying that I don't, five days after Bernie Sanders drop out, five days after I'm not comfortable endorsing Joe Biden, that's not a controversial statement. I'm sorry. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that got me in a lot of hot water that spring was um, me tweeting or quote tweeting Kamala Harris, you know, pointing out that she had previously endorsed. A Medicare for All and co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' 2017 bill and she had tweeted something out about how we gotta provide COVID treatment for free to everybody
3: mm-hmm.
1: and I said yes of course this is the only ethical thing to do
3: yeah.
1: and not just COVID all the treatments all and Absolutely. you support Medicare for All and you should continue to and that got me that had Tiffany Cross and Bakari Sellers and all of mm-hmm. these kind of mainstream media and political folks saying explicitly you will never work in this town again yeah. which you know it's fine because unlike a lot of people, I I, I had a career that yeah. was, you know, lucrative and successful, but I left to do this work because it was what I care about. Yeah. Um And while other people have different incentives and I'm not knocking anybody who needs to, you know, earn money in, in capitalism, it is what it is. That was never what drove me to this work to begin with. So I don't know why everyone, why some people, I should say, are surprised that my point of view isn't contingent on kind of who's paying the bills.
0: Yeah, and it is weird, especially because I think the appeal for those of us who supported Bernie, including me, was that it felt real. Like it felt like people yeah. were saying what they thought instead of just spouting whatever talking points are politically convenient. And, you know, everyone from Jill Rogan to Glenn Greenwald to, you know, far leftists like yourself and myself, were all coming on board this, this movement because it just felt real at a time where everyone is struggling with the lack of authenticity, not just in politics, but in our culture, you know. And there's something really beautiful about it. So, why would you not expect the National Press Secretary of Bernie Sanders' campaign just to be real, to say what she thinks? But people got so upset. I mean, did did people in the campaign get mad at you too, or was it more just like people on social media?
1: No, nobody ever reached out or said anything oh, really? to me. I haven't had any contact with anybody. Okay. I mean, I you know, I for example had um, Ari Rabenhoft, who yeah, was yeah, a yeah. you know deputy. Yeah. campaign manager on the podcast and i have relationships with people who i worked with closely on the campaign but it's not like anybody reached out and you know tried to get me to simmer down or uh-huh. have tried to influence what i've said at all at any point
0: have you talked to Bernie since then and no you haven't i have okay. not do you think you're on bad terms do you think he cares at all or do you think he's just like eh,
1: no you know this is
0: kind of the campaign i <laughs> built so this is what i gotta expect yeah people.
1: i i have no idea i at one point you know, Jane said something sweet under a, one of my tweets, and I thought, okay, oh. it seems like Jane's not mad at me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I have no idea.
0: Yeah. I've heard a lot of really good things about Jane. I'm, I'm friends with this guy, uh, Gus Newport, in hmm. in the Bay Area. I don't know if you know him. He's the former mayor of Berkeley, was like just a he's, – he's almost the father of radical politics in many ways in mm-hmm. the Bay Area, because he – he came out of the grassroots. There was an establishment candidate. Berkeley actually used to be pretty Republican, mm. surprisingly. People don't know this. But back I didn't know that. in like the 60s and 70s, I mean, it's a town of incredible wealth. There's the University of California, so it's, it's full of all these elites. And they didn't like all this radicalism, the Vietnam War stuff. It was after kind of the, the Vietnam War protests that really transformed the entire culture of Berkeley. I think because a lot of the conservatives just moved out. They moved mm-hmm. out. Of the suburbs were like, I'm done with this shit. You know, too many protests, <laughs> too many young people running around, blocking streets and uh, – and Gus was one of the people who really kind of built that up and and said, we can do something different. We as people, not as politicians, not as the elites, but we as people. And he was a community organizer. And, mm. um, and he and Bernie met a long time ago before Bernie was a senator because they're both mayors of cities who are these radicals, you know, these socialist radicals. And, and Gus has said that the Jane is like the heart of that campaign. And mm. I, I don't know what the truth is. Maybe you have a better sense. But he said- Jane, Jane is in many ways like the conscience and the soul of this campaign, and mm. is, is obviously—I mean, as you might expect—if someone's partner, incredibly influential, and she doesn't get enough credit. You know, she doesn't have, get enough credit for.
1: Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I. It's funny how much happens that's not in campaign headquarters, right? Uh-huh. I think in a lot of ways, the action is really on the road, mm. um, and that's why I think there was some actual internal jockeying among folks to kind of get themselves in a position to be on the road with Bernie because that's you know that's where all the possibility was in terms of getting whatever your ideas were mm-hmm. enacted and i was mostly in campaign headquarters and you know didn't have i think as much access to real decision making yeah. as many people would like to pretend mm-hmm. you know if you go on the internet i'm you know personally responsible for Bernie's loss which again I would love it if I had had enough influence, <laughs> influence yeah. for that to be true I would own it yeah. if I had enough influence for that to be true um but really I I think you know Bernie Bernie is as independent a fellow in real life as he appears to be sure and independent in his decision making and you don't get to be where he is and have kind of stuck to your messaging over a 40-year career where you're an iconoclast in many ways and absolutely nobody agrees with you and there's very little in the way of validation of your yeah. political beliefs. You don't get you don't get to ha- have hung on to your ideals in that way without being pretty hard-headed. Yeah. And so if you wanted to have any influence, I think you had to kind of be there with him and like really work on it and any kind of idea that you had that was a departure from his own, you know, was hard won and hard fought for. So I think it's safe to say, most of what happened on the Bernie campaign, you know, was because it's what Bernie wanted, and I think Jane also was influential in that. But sure. yeah. it really did come from the, from the head, and I, I don't think that anyone who's accused of X, Y, or Z on the campaign can really be accurately accused of that. Interesting. Yeah. Where
0: was the ha- national headquarters? Was it was and it DC. in Vermont? It was in DC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a senator. How'd you how'd you get involved in the campaign? And how did, I mean, did you did you work? He didn't work in his twenty
1: sixteen campaign Mm-mm. because no, you I was anonymous. Stein, right? I was a yeah. completely anonymous human being. <laughs> yeah,
0: I mean, because you're I mean you're pretty young, right? You're uh, probably thirty. Uh, I'm thirty six. Thirty six. Okay, not that young, but no. <laughs> um, but but you you were novice in twenty sixteen. You vote for Jill Stein. So how did you get involved in that campaign? And how did you? I mean, I actually want to step back in a moment and ask how you even got to the point in twenty sixteen. You're voting for Jill Stein because you went to Harvard Law School. You went to these corporate law firms, and in many ways you had this career out of you that is a very traditional, you know, established career, and I'm going to understand how that changed. <laughs> what led you to become, i uh, described as a gadfly, maybe that's not the right term, but whatever you <laughs> want to describe yourself, you're definitely not a typical mainstream democratic Harvard Law School graduate. There's something about you sure. that changed. But how did, Although, even from 2016 to 2020, I mean, how did you change from being someone who was on the outside just voting for Jill Stein and with 500 Twitter followers.
1: I mean, Jill Stein did to, go to Harvard Medical School, and didn't Ralph Nader also go to Harvard that's Law? True. I would just like yeah, to point there, that there out. There are some people from Harvard <laughs> who've t- t-
0: taken a turn for the better. I, I've got my cousins went to Harvard, and she's pretty cool too. So not everyone from Harvard is established. <laughs> not all Harvard graduates. No, I'm just
1: yeah. Um, so I, in 2016, like I said, was anonymous. I got kind of put on to Bernie uh, by my mom, who has oh. always been an independent. Uh, voter voted for nader i think she says obama was the first democrat she ever voted for um was really disgusted with the 90s and the clinton era uh said it felt very similar to how it feels right now with joe biden representing a kind of hard pivot back to the center and a kind of regressive conservative politics where the political imagination is being shrunk at quite a clip um you know, and, and there's a kind of a gaslighting that goes along with that too, right? Because she was coming out of the Reagan years, which was explicitly bad for liberals, you know, capital L liberals in the way that it was taken back then. But then Bill Clinton came along and the kind of performativity of pretending like it was so much better than it really was and not a continuation of a lot of the status quo and neoliberalism and uh, Bill Clinton having the effect of doing so much more to roll back Uh, various rights and protections than Reagan could ever have imagined doing because he did so under the cover of being a Democrat. It made my mother so frustrated that that's in part, in part what drove us as a family to move overseas in in, in 92, 93. Um, You know, there were other... So we moved to Saudi Arabia first for two years, and then we were in Kenya for six years, and we came back in 2001. Uh, You know, so I missed... The entirety of the Clinton years. They didn't miss much. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was as bad as your mom thought. But. There's some good TV. I had to like binge yeah, watch true. The Real World when I got <laughs> yeah. back to the states, so the I could be culturally world. competent I about that show. That was a really good show. <laughs> I mean, it's just the start of a love affair with reality TV that yeah. may or may not persist. <laughs> it's a
0: terrifying show about the future of television and media, but it was a good show too. In many ways,
1: it was. It's, it's culturally important. It Someone should do important. one of these cultural podcasts. Should yeah. do a review of The Real World. What it means about us today. Uh-huh. Um. But so it was like, I remember vividly, it was probably the fall of 2015 and I was working on a weekend one day and I got a FaceTime call from my mom and she was down in the middle of a protest downtown Manhattan somewhere with my brother who she had, you know, begrudgingly dragged down there with her looking very disinterested. And she had her arm flung around my brother and her arm flung around some random stranger lady. And they're like, signs all behind her and they were doing the chants together, united, we won't be defeated or whatever. And I'm like, mom, what are you doing? She's like, it's a Bernie Sanders rally. I'm like, who, what, Where? What, what are you, like, yeah. what is this? Come on down, come on down. I said, no, I have to work at this corporate law firm, but I'll, like, yeah. check in with you later. <laughs> and so when the debates rolled around, I'm like, all right, let's watch this. And immediately it became clear that Bernie Sanders was one of the first politicians I'd ever seen speak where I wasn't having to hold my nose, where they were yeah. genuinely articulating not just a political policy set, but a value set yeah. that resonated with me unlike anything I'd ever known. And, you know, I was raised in a house where there was, I think, a, a radical thread, even though it wasn't like a explicitly political kind of red diaper baby, baby household. But mm-hmm. my mother's father, you know, her parents were very young, uh, 16 and 17 when they had uh, her and my aunt. And... They were, you know, young radicals in the 60s. Mm-hmm. My grandfather was kind of a nation of Islam, you know, radical who was playing, you know, Bill Scott Heron records, you know, the white man's got a gaha complex to my mom. And she was like seven years old and they had memorized all the nice. the records. And when she went to Howard for college where she met my dad, she was like, I've, I've read all this already. Mm-hmm. Like all of my freshman year coursework, I that was part of my political education in my household. Mm-hmm. And my mother is a very kind of sweet and doesn't it doesn't present as this like radical firebrand the way my grandfather did. I think that she had a bit of a reaction to the, quite how visceral he was sometimes in his political presentation. But she internalized a lot of those values. And it wasn't, again, like we were browbeat or hit over the head with that stuff growing up. But I think there was an environment in which we were always invited to question politics. conventional politics and to have our North Star be a kind of secular humanism as opposed to a big D or a big R or anything like that. And so when political candidates that departed from the norm present themselves, I think that I had a much, I had much more openness Hmm. to them than some other people whose ideological project is very much partisan in nature, from the way that they were raised. And I just was never raised to think, we're Democrats. It yeah. wasn't that we're anything else in particular, but I never, I think, had that initial barrier that some folks have to overcome about voting for someone like Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Um. So-
0: Which this- is important, because back in 2014, 15, I remember when I first heard Bernie was running, I was like, that's funny. You know, it, just, yeah, it, just, it, it didn't really real. didn't feel like a joke candidacy. Yeah.
1: And, I don't think that he and, even realized. Yeah, I
0: don't. I think the historical accounts that I've read suggest, I mean historical, it was five years ago, but <laughs> but it does feel like history because, the, I mean, it's, there was something about that campaign that, and I was involved in Occupy very prayerfully, mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, I was also a corporate lawyer back in 2010 when Occupy was raging.
3: Were you? So I was working
0: at a big firm in Chicago. Where were you working? Steptoe Johnson. Okay. I, 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 I had done something very weird. I was, I, I, after I graduated from law school, I started all these animal rights groups, ran out of money. And after the financial crisis, they were trying to hire people with econ backgrounds and I had an econ. And well, a how law old background. are you? I'm 40. So I'm a little okay. old.
1: Okay. What yeah, year did you graduate from law school?
0: 2006. I was okay. a little young in law school. Yeah. But um, so I was working at this big corporate law firm and then going downstairs, you know, from law firm to hang out with the Occupy folks. Chicago was not particularly impressive. I don't know what city you were in in 2010, but New York. New York. So, I mean, you were at the epicenter. And that was – I don't know what you think about Occupy. Yeah. I thought the spirit of it was beautiful. It was so powerful how many people came out. But it didn't feel like it was entirely real. And it did dissipate pretty quickly. And so the Bernie campaign for me, it it felt like a joke initially. But once it started realizing that there was political momentum here and there was real political power here, for a lot of us who were involved in Occupy in some way in 2010, I felt like, holy shit, it's actually going to happen.
1: Yeah. Holy so shit. In 2010 I was still in law school actually. So I was okay. in, I was in Cambridge and you know it was it was a weird time because you know Obama won like a month after I started law school. Uh-huh. It was also like a month after the economy crashed. You know the the pivot of what the center of my world was back then to where I am now, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, my college boyfriend worked at Lehman Brothers, <laughs> you know, like, and we
0: were dating, dated after bank, college. For those you don't know, and it's actually the investment bank that, that basically brought it all down. <laughs> right? Can so we blame I... that on you too? Since you were dating the guy who worked at a no, I'm I kidding. mean,
1: low key. I mean, it, well, I mean, truly, it was. I remember I came to I came to law school, and it was the first time. You know, he was still back in New York, and he was going to come to visit me for the first time after I had come back to Cambridge. And he showed up and checked into his hotel in Harvard Square. I walked over to the hotel room, knocked on his door, and he was sitting there on the edge of his bed with a remote control in his hand, just staring at the TV. And hmm. he said, I have to go back to New York because it was the day that Lehman crashed. Oh my God. <laughs> he had to turn around and like go and go right and go right back. And being at Harvard Law Harvard Law when Obama won, it felt like you know, this is so corny. I know this is so cringe. I'm sorry. I cringe at myself as well. But we were like, we won. No, I, I,
2: I and totally, we're at the center of yeah. things.
1: And he's going to be on campus. And yeah. this guy is so exciting. And he's the one that's going to bring the he revolution. He was the
0: progressive in 2008 against Clinton, right? Yes. And yeah, she had run such was. a
1: dirty campaign mm-hmm, that any yeah, hesitation that you were going to have about who he was and what he really represented kind of went out the window so quickly, because yeah. it was all about Muslim garb and mm-hmm. you know I don't know if he's a Muslim. You should ask him. Oh, like, do you remember how like yeah. gross she was through it was, all it of was that? Bad. So it just became this black and white world, and you know, and there was so much optimism about it and the symbolism of it, and everyone was so caught up on it and up in it, and it felt perhaps even more we felt perhaps even more proximate to the center of it all just because we were at this institution that was sure. so core to his story. I mean, I had lived in Kenya. He was, his dad was from Kenya. Like I just, I really felt like, wow. Oh, this is like, this is, you know, this is, this is for all of us. Like yeah. this, I felt like this was, you know, somehow related to me, you know? And then by 2011, 12, let's say 2012, I'm clerking in the Eastern district. Mm-hmm. And, you know commuting and that's working for a judge
0: for those you don't sorry know. yeah yes, i okay. i'm going to go into i'm all talking law. to a lawyer <laughs>
1: mode now um
0: yeah it's it's basically it's a very prestigious position all, all the law school graduates are trying to get these clerkships with federal judges cuz it basically sets you on a career path where you get to know all the important people in law when you go clerk for a judge
1: sh- sure i mean yeah. i kind of fell into mine because again i graduated in the financial crisis our class was deferred there mm-hmm. happened to be a judge that formerly was a partner at my law firm and so i wasn't exactly i wasn't the greatest yeah, <laughs> student yeah in the world but i ended up kind of lucking into this clerkship um in downtown brooklyn my judge was actually the judge that did the um the chapo case oh interesting yeah uh, brian cogan uh so i mean that was obviously like 10 years after i got there but uh so i'm like i'm commuting back and forth to downtown brooklyn i'm like uh, working for a bush appointee conservative judge the the politics are happening Uh, Obama's running for his second term. There's more skepticism about him now. But again, I'm in an environment where I'm in a defensive posture because the judge is like saying X, Y, and Z and has his own political agenda. And I'm also watching Occupy Uh (laughs) because my firm that I'm going to after this clerkship ends is like a block from Wall Street. Interesting. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, have mercy. Am I going to have to like walk past people who's, Politically, I'm very much more aligned with, but to shuffle on down to you know Strick Strick and Levan, (laughs) to basically work for the enemy.
4: Interesting.
1: And that was the beginning of that very visceral tension of you know when you're 18, when you're 21, when you jump through these hoops. It is it is framed as very personal. You know, I'm going to get to go to the best school I can get into. Yep. Yep. Um, I got to just do my best. And it becomes this abstraction. And I think that kids these days are a little bit different because the world is different. Yeah. And there's more consideration about what kind of career you're going to go into and what the impact on the world is. And there's a bigger sense that there are different kinds of options. But truly – I remember when I was going to school, I was like, "I gotta go to college. I gotta go to grad school. I gotta do the best. Go to the best ones that I can mm-hmm, do." Mm-hmm. It's a point of personal pride. It's a point of like familial pride. There are certain racial expectations for that are set up for me as a, you know to fail, and that I've got to like prove. prove everything to yeah. the world through my, me, mm-hmm. and, you know. And the idea that I was going to do something that was helpful or hurtful or harmful. The idea that even working for a bank was like bad.
4: Mm-hmm. Wasn't really
1: in the consciousness in that way. I mean, obviously there were people who were much more sensitive and conscious than me at all times, right? But at Harvard, the thing you did, if you were smart and able, was to go work for a consulting firm. Yeah. And if you couldn't cut it, if you didn't make it, then maybe you did something. You may you know, you would maybe should I go to business school, you would go to law school. Obviously, there's the pre med folks.
3: Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. But the alternatives were kind of you know, evidence of fail- of some kind failure. of failure. No, absolutely. There was, I don't remember any conversation about people doing kind of public interest work. Yeah. None of my friends did.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And if I reflect hard on it, okay, there was that one girl who seemed like kind of a hippie and mm-hmm. like, but those those people were outliers. <laughs> yeah. It just wasn't even in the air. Like the, the good people, maybe you did like academic work. Yeah. Got yeah. a PhD or something. But everything else was kind of crap. In yeah, terms it was of kind of embarrassing. You're
0: a little ashamed to, to admit it. And when people saw you doing that sort of thing, they kind of like pitied you and Yeah,
1: you couldn't hack that. Tap indeed. you on the back <laughs> and say, like, Oh, I'm sorry, don't worry, you'll get to McKinsey someday.
0: One day yes. one day you'll get an offer from a consulting firm. Yes. Maybe not McKinsey, but at least an accenture Everybody, or something like everyone
1: that. Everyone yeah. bought those stupid books, those yeah. those Training those how to pass the yeah totally remember then
0: like from the vault
1: from the let me tell you <laughs> yeah. my my again the Lehman Brothers boyfriend guy yeah. he was like trying to drill me and like teach me how to do these things because he was you know uh. EK finance all the way type of dude and he was like Brianna like come on get it together and when I tell you I failed those interviews. <laughs> during one of them because it's like on campus recruiting and so they you just basically line up at all these doors in a hotel room and you go into one and the next and the next and the next for these like rapid fire interviews one of them went so poorly that about halfway through the interviewer says you know what Brianna I see on your resume that you do editorial cartoons for the Harvard Crimson how about you just draw something for me (laughs) (laughs) For the last 10 minutes like Seriously? legit just like doodling. I mean, that's kind of insulting, frankly. <laughs> yes. It's like
0: <laughs> humiliating for someone in a consulting firm to say that because it's basically like, nah, you don't cut this. Just draw me something. It's,
1: it wasn't meant to be. It's bullshit. You know, it's, yeah. it's fate looking down. I mean, helping me not to get segway, sidelined into one of those horrible careers. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's part of why, because I had so many close calls that way, I think it's why I do have a little bit more, for better or for worse. And it could be for worse. I'm open to the idea that this is not a good thing about me. Uh-huh a little bit more patience for neoliberals. Sure. As we're doing this project on the left of trying to convert people. Yeah. Because you were once a neoliberal, I was or once, almost one. They, they know, tried to turn you into one. But in <laughs> 2002 we were all neoliberals. No,
0: Let's just be honest. We, we, and I think, I mean, especially after the Clinton era, I mean, yeah. what you were saying, you described as gaslighting. I think it, it did put this progressive gloss on neoliberalism. We thought ending welfare as we know it, you know, um, deregulating everything because the market's going to do so much better. And you see an echo of a yeah. lot of that in, in all these issues today. And, yeah. and I mean, I you just had a podcast had on housing. Like, <laughs> I see these arguments on housing all the time. Yeah. So, but it, it was hard not to be. And and frankly, I, I think especially these elite institutions, well, there's a lot of incredibly accomplished people at them. There is also this tunnel vision that's created. Yes, where, tunnel vision
1: is a good way to put because it. Because
0: you've been so successful in your entire life and you're connected to all these successful people. The expectation they can continue along that path of traditional success is so strong that it means right. like some of the smartest and most accomplished people in the world become gears at a machine instead of genuine yeah. innovators, disruptors, revolutionaries,
1: and agents of to, change. It's hard to say no. I mean, I think that people really, some people are like, well, I would never do X, Y, and Z. This is going to sound a little bit obnoxious and I'm sorry that's okay but it's it's one thing to abstractly say you wouldn't jump for the ring yeah it's another thing when the ring is like Uh, basically on your palm
3: yeah
1: and to give up all of those opportunities and i say that you know i i obviously am fine and and lucky in so many respects but i say that as someone who did walk away from a (laughs) lucrative career um you know i don't know that some people would say oh brianna you're being too kind to these folks you know are you you know a a traitor, where do your allegiances lie? I'm like, well, if my allegiances were different, I would have made some different choices. You know, sure. I, I very much have, have walked the walk in, in this regard. Um, But it makes me also have some patience and compassion for people because I talk to these friends and all of us, and as we sit around, and we go, oh, my God, I can't believe we sounded like that. I yeah. can't believe we made these choices. I can't believe nobody suggested anything different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it it wasn't even necessarily that I believed in or agreed with the politi- the mainstream politics of the era, but truly it didn't seem like there were any alternatives. Oh goodness, yeah. So you just kind of sat there and you kept it to yourself, and I would draw a snarky editorial cartoon and think Harvey Crimson about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we would watch John Snor- Stewart and snark, mm-hmm. you know? But there wasn't, there wasn't, there didn't seem to be much in the way of more. There wasn't internet yeah. the way there is now where you can find all of these diversity of opinion. I think that YouTube came out when I was like a sophomore. And my computer was too old to really <laughs> run it properly. Like, I couldn't yep. really watch videos on my compu- my laptop until law school. Yeah, There was no Twitter. Facebook came out when I was a freshman. I mean, this was a different world. Yeah, and yeah. you just didn't have, you know, you couldn't just log into Kyle Kalinsky or whatever and get a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, 20, in 2016, I was working at this law firm. I would moved to a smaller, um, like, 10 attorney firm at this time. And... I was having conversations about the election with my coworkers. I was the only black attorney at this firm. I was the only non-white attorney at this firm. And it was shocking because their opposition to Bernie was always couched in these identity terms. Where they would tell me that black people didn't like Bernie, that only white bros like Bernie. And I was like, sir. but So this
0: is white people this telling is white people, This is white people. This is
1: white like, people telling you what black people Truly, want. 30% of the people at this firm were men named David. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> And they were trying to tell me that the reason why I couldn't like Bernie was because of these identity based issues. And I'm like, even if that is true, even if only black, only white people like Bernie, I am standing before you, sir. Yeah, (laughs) And I I need you to make a substantive argument to me because I, I don't just I'm not going to do what some hive mind black person thinks because, you know, you might not be able to reason on by yourself. But I am black and I have confidence in my own reasoning ability and don't need to kind of like performatively say I'm going to do what other people do. I have my own self-interest as a black person and I think Bernie Sanders represents that. Now, if you have a substantive reason why you think that that is not Mm -hmm. true, please say it to me using words. You're an attorney. I'm sure you can manage to muster up an argument, but they couldn't. And it was such a frustrating period of time. I mean, you remember? Yeah. It was nothing like 2020. It was like... I mean, 2020 hurt because we felt so much closer, Yeah. but 2016 in terms of the raw psychological warfare that was happening on the internet was so much worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at the time, my best friend and I decided to start a podcast, LOL. Who knew this was going to be my future? Um, Mostly just for catharsis. We could talk to each other once a week. Um, And talk about our politics because he also – he started out as a bit more on the fence but then came over very quickly to Bernie. And because I'm a black woman and because he's gay and Asian and male, like, we represented factions that weren't supposed to like Bernie Sanders. So we started our podcast, Someone's Wrong on the Internet, like 93 people listened to it for the first few episodes. It was – I would, like, refresh. I would be like, mom, make sure you play it so it goes up to like 100. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Truly, that's what the scenario was. I remember posting
0: my first YouTube video and that (laughs) felt so good. And that 100th person watched the video and it's like, wow, 100 people out there know about this. It's a nice feeling. It was a
1: good feeling. And the thing is, it kind of weirdly took off. Um, I remember, you know, Zed Jelani was an early listener and remember him retweeting it and me thinking it was a big teaser, a real journalist at like Intercept, you know, who likes my podcast and... You know, we had episodes where we eventually got to a point where thousands of people were listening to it, and I didn't have a sense of what the normal podcast sure. listenership rate was. So in my head, I'm like, well, if we don't have 100,000 listeners, then we're a failure. Now that I know yeah. a little bit more about podcasts, I was like, oh, we're doing we're doing we're actually really kind want. of okay. Yeah. Um, and we put out like our first YouTube video, got like 75,000 hits, and I was like, wow, we could really be doing a thing. Yeah.
0: So the, wait, wait. Can you just explain? You're at a law firm at this. I was time at a law though. firm. So how does that work? It's I mean, completely what, anonymously. It's t- not anonymous.
1: My Twitter wow. handle is Bree Bree Joy because I, my whole life is supposed to be anonymous. Not because okay. I wanted every stranger in the world to call me Bree, <laughs> which is now what happens. Yeah. it's fine. But okay. you know, I only refer to myself as Bree on the show. Okay. My co-host's name is generic. You know, so no one was like IDing Joe out of the ether, um, and it was it was a completely private private project my my um even my picture on twitter until recently probably like a year or so ago was a kind of a pro, blurry profile picture that uh-huh. was taken uh-huh. on some like 2006 era camera phone you know <laughs> that i think was intentionally kind of vague yeah and i ran i was under the radar for a long time now in 2017 it was my 10 year reunion and i was feeling all these feelings about where i was in life Huh. And I hated being a lawyer. I never wanted to be a lawyer. I always wanted to escape, but the student loans were there, and I I didn't see a way out of it. Uh-huh. Um, at one point, I thought it's okay. I'll just do this for the rest of my life and be miserable, but I'll have a family life and I'll get validation in other parts of my life. And then, you know, I became unengaged and like things happened. I was like, well, this I'm not going to put all my hope for happiness in these men. Let me figure out what I want to do with myself. So. I said I'm going to start to definitely <laughs> don't put your hope for happiness
0: in men. I know a lot of men. I'm a man, and I will tell you that is a recipe for failure.
1: Um, uh, ten out of ten. <laughs> ten kids. out of ten. Good advice. We're in agreement. Advice that. learned. Yeah. <laughs> internalized. Um, so I, I started writing. I decided to write articles to draw attention to my podcast.
0: Wait, can I just ask you a question? I mean, I'm st- I'm still not quite understanding because these law firms, mm-hmm. you know, in fact, lawyers in general are just conservative even liberal lawyers are very very conservative in the sense i mean you're always representing your clients and trying to keep them safe and telling them don't take any risks and
2: you know don't talk to the media
0: like that's something i as a lawyer have said so many times to so many clients and every lawyer i've ever had the first thing they say is don't talk to the media don't get you know don't bring too much attention to yourself and so you're in many ways contradicting the basic culture of the profession and just going out there and not just talking to everyone but endorsing this radical approach to politics so I understand a lot more who you are now because the fact that your mom who's who she is and your grandfather and your dad who are who they are makes a lot more sense because I was trying to figure out how did this person go to Harvard Law School and go to work at Stroke and then become this Bernie Radical. And it sounds like actually Harvard and the corporate law stuff was in many ways the departure. That was the departure. But what what made you depart back to kind of who you were and your? mind? I really roots? wanted
1: to go to Brown. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> they
1: waitlisted me. <laughs> so basically, you're just trying
0: to get to Brown again, you know? No, but there, there, I mean, was there a thought process? I mean, it, it must have felt like a risk to say, "Let me just kind of abandon this path that I'm on." This because we talked about the tunnel vision. And well, and I didn't abandon
1: it. And in some ways, I was playing it very safe, right? Safe, I, I because was, you did it anonymous. I was anonymous. Thing. Okay. I. I I look, did you
0: really believe that would hold up? I mean, nothing's really anonymous it did anymore. for like a year <laughs>
1: and a half until it, I guess maybe back like, in
0: 2016 we did believe in it, it maybe, but nowadays it feels like there's I mean, no hope for that. I thought
1: the thing that was going to get me in trouble was that I was spending so much time arguing on the internet uh, instead yeah. of like billing Don't hours. You you know I mean? <laughs> 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 That's the thing and I did you get think you were some gonna warnings get like, okay. you yeah. need to, you know, get your hours up and I, know that I would reform and then I would go back to it and I would get another yeah. warning, you know, in like 18 months. But, you know, I, I, I I hated being a lawyer. I saw a therapist about like she was like a a, recommended as someone who talks to people with kind of high, high, I don't know who call it, like prestigious careers or whatever, like high Mm -hmm. pressure careers who don't like it. Um, And like everything that we did in session, probably Mm -hmm. to the detriment of my more substantive development, was about my professional life and how Mm -hmm. to escape and feeling genuinely trapped by these like $2,300 a month student loan payments. yeah, And people would say, well, be a public interest attorney. And I was like, well, you know, at a certain point I was like dating a public interest attorney. I was like, mm-hmm. he works so hard. yeah, You know, he works so hard and there's this additional psychological burden of everything he does feels like a drop in the bucket. yeah. And he's like commuting for hours to get to Rikers to drop off like sweatpants for these clients. And like he gets paid not any money, <laughs> you know. His loans aren't canceled outright. They have you in that limbo yeah. where they reimburse you, but the, mm-hmm. and it just felt like this was also not sustainable. Yeah, in part not just because the work was hard, but because it felt like I always had more of a desire to address more systemic issues than do direct services work.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And my mom, who's a psychologist by trade had a, always a similar mindset where she, you know, at a certain point you get really overwhelmed by person after person after person and all of that psychological weight of these interpersonal experiences
3: mm-hmm.
1: that I, and she's really good at it. You know, she's just like so good at it. I, I didn't necessarily want to take that approach. Mm-hmm. So what are the other other exit avenues? There's no, there's no loan forgiveness for being like a journalist. Yeah. I checked. I was like, well, what if I talk, I'm a legal journalist. No, they weren't having it. Yeah. So I just, I truly felt stuck. Yeah. And so I started writing. Can I just say something about mm-hmm. that
0: too? Because it's funny, if you actually wanted to create change, if if these loan forgiveness programs are really about how do you make a positive impact on the world, being a journalist is actually one of the best ways to do that, right? Right. To, to expose corruption. But they would have said, why do you to well, tell the narratives. law school? But, yeah, but so and too often the things they do allow you to do when you go to one of these law schools and rack up, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, or I'm sure it was obscene.
1: 180. Yikes. Oh.
0: <laughs> yeah, but they allow you to do these things that are like symptomatic alleviation. You can go out there and, and volunteer and be a public interest lawyer, but you go out there and try and challenge power in a more direct way, and and yeah. you're just
1: screwed. I mean, I mean look, there's my, no support for my it. My most recent partner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's terrible. I don't mean to make this like a referendum on every boyfriend I've ever had, but my most recent partner was a housing attorney in New York. And it was during COVID. And there were this terrible dynamic that emerged where, you know, the people who fund these institutions mm-hmm. are not our class allies, yeah. right? They're like funded charitably. And there was this tension between the courthouses being closed, which is good if you're a housing attorney, right? Like if you're a public defender, like the boyfriend before that, it's a different dynamic, right? Because sure. you, you want your clients out to get jail. out of jail. absolutely. If you're a housing attorney... And the end the, result of the litigation is likely going to be eviction. Yeah. As long as nothing happens, your client is still in their house, <laughs> yeah. right? So there was this tension between, you know, with the COVID regulations and what's safe and what isn't, the, the institution started to make say things like, well, we should meet the court. We should meet them halfway. Mm-hmm. And our institutional investors want us to meet them halfway and go ahead and say, "We'll do, um, we'll do virtual trials.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And my partner was like, well, who is this for? Virtual trials disadvantage the client in myriad ways because there's, you know, a lack of interpersonal interaction that happens. There's all kinds of like social cues and signals that are ultimately going to disadvantage our client. We don't have to say yes to this. Besides which, there's just no, my job is to zealously defend my client. My client is not served by starting up trials at all. We don't have to Acquiesced to this compromise. Mm-hmm. But the pressure was coming because the institution ultimately is not independently funded. It's not funded by the kinds of people who need tenants' rights protections in the most expensive city in America. I don't want LA people to come for me, but one of the most expensive cities in America. You know, so these conflicts of interest exist for people who work in these spaces and they know it's not, you know, the revolution is not coming as important as it is, as important as tenant advocacy work is. It's not coming through public interest attorneys it's just not yeah Yeah. and and i don't know it's also not coming through podcasts i'm not trying to sound some some high horse it's going to come through some combination of all of those skills you know Mm -hmm. captain planet style powers combined but i you know i i felt driven to use what i always felt like were my talents which were speaking and writing and the kind of rhetorical work that you are told you're going to do as a lawyer but never actually never manifests to. as I'm yeah. sitting there writing my 12,000th interrogatory <laughs> um, in some bigger way. Yeah. And so I started writing to draw attention to the podcast, ironically. And I pitched, 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 and nobody was taking my articles. And then eventually, I realized that... A woman i went to law school with who i didn't know in law school but we had become friends on facebook because we were the two black women fighting with all of our classmates about bernie sanders (laughs) vanessa ab she wrote for current affairs i asked her if she thought current affairs would publish something for me and they did and those first two articles went viral and then suddenly i had a writing career
0: awesome what were the articles about
1: the first one was about identity politics interesting
4: Okay. And the second one was. And I'm about, guessing it was a critique because that's critique. what you're known for. Okay, great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> how the weaponization of identity is, how identity is weaponized against the left or something like okay. that. Okay. I title. think
0: I might have read this article actually.
1: It it put me on the map. Yeah. And then the other one was about um, cultural appropriation, which seems like such a cute thing to care about at this point. Yeah. Uh, but it was also a critique. Okay. Uh, and had its own kind of longer tail on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then it was off to the races.
0: And these things were obviously published in your own name, because I don't think Current Affairs takes pieces in with a pen name or anonymously, from what I understand. mm -hmm. Okay. So how did that feel? I mean, that must have felt... Did that feel like a a Rubicon moment where... Because you're still... At this point, you're still working in a law firm. I very much was. You're saying, okay, I'm going to jump into the political sphere and start becoming a journalist. I mean, what are your colleagues thinking about this when they see this
1: they, Do they just see they just, just don't know it took they them don't know probably nine more months to <laughs> figure it out to, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I, it's kind of funny how siloed yeah. the world is even though i mean we live in a very global world but at the same time it's very siloed in, in a lot of ways because there's so much out there it's hard to follow everything
1: yeah they yeah. i you know was i was torn because i think i had maybe published one smaller piece uh in paste before that as b gray okay and then some people liked it and then i I was torn between, you know, needing my job and having a little bit of a Leo ego and feeling chagrined that nobody knew it was me. (laughs) So for the current affairs pieces, you know, I had worked hard on them and I was proud of them. And I I let Nathan, he's the one that made me Brianna Joy Gray and put the middle name in there. And it was fine because nobody figured it out for a long time. No one figured it out until uh, I was the following. This was. So the articles came out maybe like June of 2017. F- January, February of 2018, the Bernie campaign – and this answers your question about how I got how to Bernie. How you
0: the Bernie, yeah. Uh,
1: uh, someone from comms in the Bernie campaign reached out and asked if I wanted to come and cover his journey to um, – he was giving speeches for the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. Hmm. And he was going to give a speech in Memphis and a speech in Jackson, Mississippi, and he was going to take a three-hour car ride to get from one to the other. And did I want to join him for an off-the-record conversation in the car? Wow. Now, in retrospect- Wow. That must that have felt a kind amazing. That was interview, is what yeah. it was. At the so time, I'm so naive. was you're, so naive.
0: How many, how many articles did you write? You've written-
1: well, you, after, you've been writing about
0: current in current affairs for a while at this point.
1: Well, yeah. And okay. after those articles, I got – I mean, I was so excited. Because remember, yeah. I had been cold pitching for like the first three, four months of the year and nothing. nobody mm-hmm. jacking, nobody was writing me back. Suddenly, I was writing for Rolling Stone and I was writing for wow. New York Magazine. It, it was like a dream come true. Um, So I was like, okay, I would love to come. I can't say no to this, right? But I had just gone back from vacation. I <laughs> just taken like a week off. Um, I didn't really – I couldn't really ask for more time off sure. without an excuse, and I also didn't want to pay for it myself. Sure. Like they were like, "This is happening in two days. Can you fly down on a Tuesday to Memphis, Tennessee?" So I got New York Magazine to cover it, wow. to you know pay for the trip, and I would write an article for them. And I just took sick days. I was like, "I'm going to be sick Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> this is happening, huh. you know." Uh, and when I came back from that trip, I was delayed, so it was I got back like late on a Friday. I like missed a or I don't remember what happened exactly. And my my friend, my, like my girlfriend in the office, um, who was the office manager, I was like, Madeline, did anybody notice? Like, is there anybody said anything about me being gone? It's a very small office, remember? And Madeline's like, no, so far so good. Like nobody's asked. Maybe it was a Thursday evening I got back. And then Friday morning she comes into my office and closes the door and says, something's going to happen today. Like they were asking about you. Oh, if no. I knew anything about you or where you were, da, da, da. and Madeline <laughs> knew everything. I had told yeah. Madeline everything every step of the way. She uh-huh. knew everything about what i had been writing and everything. How did you think you were going to get away with this? Because you were publishing a story about <laughs> you. Just but did I've been it, publishing right? stories all year. That's true. Okay, so you, you think what they're just going to continue? Was that I was annoying. just an absentee employee. I, you know, I can kind of <laughs>
0: understand that when it's current affairs, because current affairs, it's. It, it's a very important publication, but it's a leftist publication, activist types read it. But New York magazine's a little different. Well, I mean, like, that's that's a very important publication, especially in New York City. So
1: but I'm it wasn't kind like of they a saw my thought. byline in New York okay. Mag and found me out. It was that I was acting suspiciously, okay. so they Googled, Googled me and, they and then they found, found everything. Everything you're doing, Ryan and think
0: Okay, there's something else going on here. This is not just a normal sick day.
1: Right. Yeah. And but luckily for me. At that time, I had a pending. I had interviewed for the Intercept already. Ryan Grimm had huh. reached out and asked me if I wanted to come on board, and I was like, "Yes, sir, please." Okay. And so, I was I was pending hearing the result of that interview. Okay. And so when I was, and as a full time employee, as a full time okay, as so you would be leaving your editor. firm
0: at this point if you were to okay. So you had something. In the works, that Hopefully. if your firm fired you, you'd be okay. Hopefully. Okay.
1: And what they what they said was not, you know, you're not fired, but it's obvious that you'd rather be doing something else. And yeah. it's like, you're good at that other thing. And I was just not go good at being it. a lawyer, so that was the <laughs> subtext of that statement. And, you know, we just encourage you to, you know, make haste. And yeah. I was like, what does that mean? Do I have like two weeks? Do I have like six months? And they were like, you know, you have months. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. And I, like a week later, I found out that I got the Intercept gig. And- nice. Okay, so tell
0: me about this this reach out, because Bernie Sanders in 2018, in 2015, it would have been, whatever, he's crazy, and he's just, I mean, he's a senator from Vermont. How many people are in Vermont, like 20? I mean, who cares? And he's a socialist. I mean, literally, everybody I know who knows politics, when he first decided to run, I think it was in 2015, it was a joke. It was a complete joke. But by 2018, Bernie Sanders is a big deal. I mean, most people are seeing him as a front runner in 2020, I think, or at least a lot of people are. So you get you get this reach out. I mean, had you talked to someone in that stratosphere before? I mean, no. what is your reaction to like getting this reach out? You must have been just giddy. I mean,
1: no, I think I'm just ai can and I continue to be a deeply naive human being. <laughs> Truly, I fall into everything. I, you know,
0: so you just think it's no big deal, you know?
1: I'll, so much I'll, I'm going to talk happens. to possibly
0: the next president, and it's, it's well. For three hours, I mean, especially three hours in a car with him. I mean, that's. I mean, I was nervous. Yeah, also like I was
1: nervous to meet my heroes because you know what if he was terrible,
0: you know. That's always, yeah.
1: What if you? That actually kind of happened to me.
0: Barack Obama. I met Barack Obama a long time ago. Wait, when? Um, I met him in the year 2000 when he ran for House. And
1: he was mean back in 2000? He was very mean to me. <laughs> you should yeah. talk to Norm Finkelstein about it. Yeah, I, I saw a little <laughs> bit about
0: that. For the record, he was brilliant and incredibly intimidating. He was not <laughs> stupid, unlike what right. Norm Finkelstein well. is saying. But he was extremely mean to me.
1: Well, what did he do? Um,
0: so, I, so this is a long time ago, before he was big. But he was running against Bobby Rush. And I was a journalist back then. I was a columnist for the University of Chicago Maroon, which – Probably had 35 people read it, you know, but but he was losing very badly. I don't know if you've read about his biography, but he was he was running a terrible campaign. Bobby Rush destroyed him in that campaign. And so he said, Well, I lost this campaign anyways, and no one's caring, so I'll just talk to this dumb columnist. Um and I actually knew his wife at the time, and his wife is because she was the head of the community service center, and I was mm. a volunteer there, and everybody loved her, they thought. Mm. She was and I don't even remember particular interaction, but I just remember her being incredibly welcoming. And mm. anytime you walk in the office, she didn't have like a separate office; she just like sat in the corner with everybody else. Mm. And she just created a culture that was super happy, positive, inclusive, and everyone felt like you walk in that room, you felt like your family. And Brock is not like that at all. Interesting. <laughs> like he uh, he showed up to the interview quite a bit late. Um, and I'm a very nervous, anxious young reporter who doesn't know what the hell I'm doing incredibly intimidated by this guy's backstory and he's a faculty member at the law school and i'm Mm. thinking i'm gonna go to law school someday this Mm. guy went to harvard he was a president of harvard law review Mm. wasn't even the political stuff that intimidated me because at the time i thought i was gonna be an academic and i thought Mm. i need to impress this guy he's like Mm. an academic and you know but he he like clearly indicated to me when he thought my questions were stupid by like looking at me funny or not even funny but just like you know just kind of rolling his eyes a little bit And he kept looking at his watch the entire time. And there were a couple of times, and you know, it's really hard because this was over 20 years ago. I distinctly recall, and this could be one of these planted memories that I just experienced this. So I think he actually said this, but I I distinctly remember him saying to me a number of times, keep it going, keep it going and kind of moving his hands just when I was stalled. Because when you're a young reporter and you're doing an intimidating interview, like, you've got all these questions, and this is back when you don't have laptops and yeah. smartphones, so all your questions are on a notepad, yeah. and I'm, like, trying to find my questions, and so he arrived late, <laughs> but he kept going, come on, let's move it along, let's move it along, and I just, like, every time he said that, it just paralyzed me and made it even harder for me oh, to find my wait. question, because I'd be like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what? Barack Obama's here, and he's, like, super smart, and he clearly had an answer for everything even before i asked the question and i just felt so stupid through that entire interview
1: but it was still a really
0: good experience and i wrote a glowing piece about him and um but yeah it was it was very difficult and so i still it's funny because i still did think of him as a brilliant guy and he is brilliant i mean anyone who i norm ficklestein is totally talking of his ass there's nobody (laughs) i know you know Cass Sunstein was my mentor when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. One of the, I mean, he was at mm-hmm. Harvard probably when you were in law school. He's mm-hmm. like the smartest, one of the smartest law professors in history. Brilliant guy. And every time I talked to Cass about Obama, he was just like, this guy is, is, is a legend. Not just in terms of politics, mm-hmm. but just, you know, because at the time, a lot of those USC, Brock went to the University of Chicago Law School because all of them wanted him to become a law professor. Mm-hmm. They didn't think he was necessarily a politician. They just thought this guy he's going to become the next Cass Sunstein. We mm. really want him there. And the University of Chicago was a place where they really developed that sort of person. They don't care yeah. about, you know, going into the corporate law. Right. They don't care about going into industry. They care about developing academics. That's what they're known for. And to a person, even, even the conservatives like Richard Epstein or Dick Posner, they all just thought he was brilliant. And Interesting. he was. So yeah. there's no one who's interacted with him who I have ever heard of who said that this guy is not a world-class analyst because like, he is.
1: I- I'm open to what norm was saying about the fact that i do think that there are there is a way that liberals will exaggerate the you know intelligence or other accolades about a black person and i was not a person of color but i really just mean a black person
3: yeah yeah
1: um because it burnishes their own racial bona fides mm. i think that is a th- true thing but that what that can mean is that if i see a black person who i who is smart? I'm just yeah. going to talk about it ten percent more, fifty percent more than I would ordinarily because yeah. I really yeah. want to take this opportunity to show everybody that I am capable yeah, I'm of saying down. good things Absolutely. about a black person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't mean that that person isn't yeah. actually intelligent yeah. or worthy of much of that praise. And I do think that, that Norm did a good job pointing out some examples that I think are obviously ridiculous, like you know, L- Larry Tribe claiming that he's like a physics expert and understands huh. like. Theory of relativity. When he's never taken a physics class, seems to be an obvious overstatement what? of his ability. Larry Tribe said this about Obama. Uh, apparently, this is this is one of the things <laughs> okay. in Norm, Norm Finkelstein's chapter. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not I'm not trying to disagree <laughs> with everything, Norm, but like you are now undermining that solid piece sure. of evidence with all of this malarkey about how he's not actually smart and the affirmative action is way to yeah. the har- law review. Like this is insane. But you we were very patient
0: get... with Norm, by the way. I have watched a lot of those interviews. I thought you were you you demonstrated that patience <laughs> you were talking about earlier, and and I think you did a wonderful job of listening, notwithstanding the fact that this guy. Was was talking about his ass a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I love Norm, and there's a reason people love Norm, right? Yeah. Because he's that same cranky, crotchety perseverance is what has enabled him to speak truth to power in a lot of other contexts where mm-hmm. other people have been sidelined and maligned, and the careers have been ruined, as has his as his career has been ruined. And that takes courage, and I have the utmost respect for that. Mm-hmm. But I think this happens with a lot of iconoclasts including people I love and I talked to I talked to Glenn Greenwald about this mm-hmm. on on Bad Faith podcast about how there are you can get to a place and I empathize with this because sometimes I'm in that zone where so much of your personal success has come from not listening to other people and sticking to your truths and saying the thing that you believe in like Bernie Yeah that you can get into a place where you won't take anybody's advice, where you uh-huh. won't listen to anybody.
0: Yeah,
1: and sometimes you're wrong.
0: Yeah, and that's that's just as bad of a place to a be in the opposite. Place to be, Absolutely, you're right? right. And
1: yeah. I what I want on my podcast is to, for it to be a you know safe space uh-huh. for people to know that if I'm giving you pushback, it's not because I'm afraid of an iconoclastic view or I'm being you know sensitive or identity politicsing or any of that kind of stuff. It's because you know. I'm rooting for you and your project, but like maybe we can more carefully define what we're doing here and make, make sure that we're making the best case for whatever it is you're saying because what you're saying is already pretty radical and people aren't going to be inclined to hear it. Yeah.
0: Well, I think you do a great job with it. So keep it up. Keep it <laughs> Thank up. you. We didn't actually finish the story about Barney though. Like, I, I, I'm sure everyone's curious. So what was that first interaction with Barney like? So you fly out, you said it was Memphis Yes. It was a car ride from Memphis to somewhere to else? To Jackson. Three hours. Jackson, Jackson, Mississippi? Yeah. I'm, I'm showing my ignorance <laughs> of the South.
2: I was about to say Missouri, and I, I'm glad I caught myself. No, Mississippi. So, but
0: what was that like? So, you, you fly out there, you you get out of your car, there's Bernie in another car. Well,
1: I attended the event. He okay, spoke, you attended the event. He so, he's speaking in at an event. Okay. And if I recall correctly, he ended up, he spoke, I don't remember where the venue was, but I remember him walking down. Um, was the famous street from the song? Put on your blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Oh
0: God, you're talking to the wrong the Chinese guy. <laughs> I, mean, I barely even know um, what the hell hip hop is. I'm so walking I'm,
1: in Memphis, huh. walking with my feet ten street off the Be- Beale Street. Beale, Beale, Beale street. street. All right, good. Oh, I've actually Jesus. heard of Beale Street. I don't know why, but it does. Okay, Beale Street. Uh, okay. He was, you know, he walked down, and there were a bunch of other civil rights people around because, you know, it was a Martin Luther sure. King commemoration. Yeah. I. He like stops in a restaurant and there's like uh, Al Sharpton, no lies, sorry, Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson and they like dap each other up and it's like very camaraderie and it was it was cool to see him interacting with all these people and there was so much respect and it was such a departure from the narrative about Bernie that really persisted up into that point, right? Mm-hmm. Black people don't like him, he's, you know, toxic to people of color and this is a black city, you mm-hmm. know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, and he's walking down the street and all of these kids, these Black people are mm-hmm. coming up to him. They want to take a picture. They're throwing their arms around him. They know who he is. Mm-hmm. He's really a, a, an attention grabber.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: He, you know, he's, be, he's being swarmed walking up and down Beale Street. At one point, there was like a group of kids on some kind of like student outing, maybe middle schooler or something like that. And he loves kids. So he pulls up a chair and all the kids crowd around him and he asks them questions about – what they care about, what their priorities are, what their worries are. And they're like, they're eating it up. And it was, huh. it was beautiful. It was lovely.
0: Bernie loves kids. I had Bernie no idea. Because he seems like such a grumpy dude who wouldn't be so cuddly with like little kids and animals. He, he but... loves
1: authenticity. He loves, and, okay. And there's so well, that's what he likes about the kids. like a middle school kid will just say just what they're going to say. They're gonna they're say. say. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's yeah, yeah. no guile on, sure. yeah. on like a middle school kid. Okay. I get that. Um. So at this point, we haven't had a one-on-one. I'm just like following and like taking pictures and taking notes for the article. And again, the car ride is off the record. So whatever we talk about there, I know I can't put in the article and we have a separate call. I think actually after I'm back in New York where I interview him and get quotes for the piece. Um, so
0: it's off the record. It's not for, for reporting mm-hmm. purposes. So why did they want to talk to you?
1: in retrospect,
0: time. okay, so they're, they, okay, they're they're basically trying to hire you. Okay, that's right. you said that earlier that you thought this is basically. But that did a, not a, occur with our interview at all of the okay. time,
1: at all. I thought that it was maybe like they identified me as someone who was potentially friendly press, you sure. know, someone who was a yeah. progressive writer coming up who was black in a media culture where. Bernie was getting dinged on mm-hmm. not having, you know, all the black people in media were writing negative things about him and that maybe they were trying to soften me up in that yeah, kind of yeah. way. That's kind of what I thought was going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, because back in twenty sixteen, Black Lives Matter activists literally took the mic away from him. He yeah. was disrupted. Was it in Seattle? I don't even remember what I don't city remember it was. Where yeah. it was. So there was a lot of discussion in the media and I mean, I don't even know what the truth of this was, but that there was a lot of discontent with Bernie within the black community, which you heard yourself at a firm.
1: I mean I heard right? it right. And and
0: I <laughs> I think a lot of the data suggests that's maybe not so true, but at least it was that was part of the media the media narrative in twenty sixteen and, and in twenty eighteen too, as he was considering Iran. So you think yeah, this is kind of one of the reasons they they reach out to you because they think, okay, this is somebody who's Who's from that community and, and maybe can be someone who can be a part of what we're trying to do in a way that a, a shows counter narrative. A counter narrative. You know, I was yeah. well
1: positioned to write a counter you know, Tani is writing Bernie Sanders is, you know, bad because he doesn't support reparations, even though neither does Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, they all have the exact mm-hmm. same stance of reparation. And I support reparations, and so I'm not a I'm not against criticizing Bernie on that, but it was it was politically motivated. Sure. Right? You know, it matters when Bernie does it, but not when anybody else does it. Reparations, if you can think to the way back of early 2019, suddenly became a top issue at the beginning of the primary, I think, because they believed they could knock Bernie out early by revisiting that stuff from 2016, and it just didn't work.
4: Hmm.
1: The last two articles I wrote for The Intercept were both reparations articles talking about Bernie's stance and the way that it was being weaponized in this really gross way, where suddenly Beto O'Rourke and... Um, what's his face? Uh, Julian Castro. Everybody mm-hmm. had an opinion about reparations all of a sudden. And, and so, have you heard any of them say a word about reparations since then? Yeah. What's Beto up to? <laughs> <laughs> like crusading for black interests all over Texas. You know, like what? Come on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, I don't remember even, I mean, it's, I'm, you know, I don't even really remember the specifics of what we talked about except that we, you know, we had a regular conversation for two and a half hours and then about a half hour before we got to Jackson, he's like, I need to, Look at my remarks, my Mm -hmm. notes. So I, you know, I stared out the window and looked at my phone for the last half an hour. Interesting. Um,
0: When did you know this was a job interview? Did you get the sense? Uh, Okay,
1: never. Because remember, maybe like a month after that, I started at the Intercept. Okay, that to me was my dream job. Mm -hmm. I had been wanting to be a journalist for so long, and just never thought it was possible because of my loans. Mm -hmm. You know what regular journalist salaries are like. (laughs) My, you know, I pay more in student loans in a year than a journalist makes. Truly. Um and I was going to get no, you know, I I just couldn't figure out how it was going to work. And obviously going to the intercept was a significant pay cut. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It still kept me in a realm where I you know I ate through my savings for that year. Sure. But it I could do it. I could like make it work. Um so that's what I was focused on. I loved working at the intercept. I loved being in, you know, your job is to have opinions about things and they're like paying you to do this. I was doing it for free. Mm-hmm um
0: and they've got a nice office in new york city right oh, it's there's, a, gorgeous. It's, there's a lot of people in new york
1: oh it's like it was walking distance from my apartment which wow. my law firm was not
0: okay
1: yeah <laughs> um it it's in this beautiful beaux arts building on the t- the whole top floor with these big uh, half circle arched windows that go all the way around they have the whole floor wow. so it's just like arch 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 window and this classical architecture in this big modern interior open layout i've always wanted to work on an open plan mm. office i have like gen z envy i'm like an old crotchety millennial that's used to working in like <laughs> cubicles sure. and all of these tech people who you know i was a little too old to really be having those yeah. kind of tech job opportunities wow, wow. upon graduating um like that was i just everything about it the aesthetics the workplace the interest in what I had to say, yeah. the kind of intellectual freedom. I had never felt valued like that in a workplace. That's awesome. And I loved it. So I really wasn't thinking about Bernie. I never imagined I'd work in politics. Never in a million years. Until he launched his campaign. And then at some point, at the very end, you know, around New Year's ish probably of twenty what year are we now? Uh nineteen. Mm-hmm. You know, New Year's they reached out and asked if I would take a meeting. And at the time I was actually living in D.C. because The Intercept had sent me to D.C. because technically I was D.C. politics editor. And they wanted me to live here for a few months and get kind of work under Ryan Grimm's wing and learn the ropes from him as it were. And so we had a meeting in his, I think office, Senate office, and it was him and Jane and I think Ari Rabenhoft and maybe someone else. Maybe Fez was there, I don't remember. And they asked me if I would come on. Wow. And it, it truly hadn't really occurred to me. It truly hadn't really occurred to me. Hmm. And I was like, in what capacity? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've never worked in politics. I want to be yeah. really clear. Because sometimes people say this to me as a smear. Yeah. Like, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't work. I'm like, correct. Huh. I've never pretended otherwise. But there was something about my communication skills, you know, Ari. RE- said, you know, I I don't know anybody else who can kind of approximate Bernie's voice in this way. And we we want we want you to come on board. Yeah. And it was hard because, like I said, I truly I felt like I had reached my long term professional goal and working at The Intercept. And I knew that working in politics might preclude me from being able to hold myself out as an independent journalist going forward. And I had some long conversations with David Sirota about it. He was in a similar position, contemplating joining the campaign, obviously in a different capacity. Um, And ultimately, you know, I asked asked Bernie in that meeting, are you sure I'm more useful to you in the campaign than outside of it? Because outside of it, I'm an independent black journalist who's, you know, writing favorable things about you because I believe in your political project organically in a way that everybody else... Is aggressively antagonistic to your <laughs> political project organically. And if I come into the campaign, then I'm just a mouthpiece. Are you sure that I can't have more influence? And he's like, no, I, I really want you on the campaign. Hmm. And I felt like, well, if Bernie Sanders really wants it's me on this campaign, campaign. who am it. I to say no? Absolutely. This feels like a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity.
0: Yeah. So what did you tell The Intercept?
1: I told him I had to leave.
0: Yeah. And did they understand? Or were they like? I guess the Intercept is a different sort of place too. It's not like one of these more conventional ma- mainstream media outlets where there's supposed to be this line, right? I mean, I like the Intercept has always been a place that believes in adversarial <laughs> journalism and having a position and opinion about things. And yeah, just, and
1: I was an op. I always wrote op. That's right. You were always you know? in the
0: op opinion side. So, but it, it wasn't that much of a departure.
1: No, and the second okay. I decided to go work for Bernie, I stopped writing for the Intercept. Okay. Like I made, I made my decision about a week before. Uh, I was set to interview AOC actually at huh. South by Southwest on I think it was like March eighth something like that, and I made my decision like a few days before that, and that was my last like intercept obligation. Wow, and then it was off to
0: the races. Then it was
1: off to the races. Off to the races.
0: So what was it about Bernie's campaign, just substantively? I mean, like I don't, I don't see your, your critique of identity politics is in many ways. And we should talk about that because we actually haven't talked about the substance of that. And I think that's probably, certainly intellectually, what you're most known for. But what was it about the campaign substantively that most drew you to it? Was it just the authenticity and the fact that it was anti-establishment and that he was, you know, trying to build this grassroots movement? Or was there an issue? So, I mean, obviously, you personally were affected by student loans, so...
1: I, mean, yeah, I don't know if that was my, the issue. Was was your one crucible? issue? <laughs> that's your crucible. I mean, it's so many people's crucible.
0: If you look at kind of where all the young people are today, it's astonishing how much student loan debt has increased, yeah, and how incomes have not. Correct. You know, there's 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 no wealth accumulation among the younger folks, and this is. I mean, it's been said many times, but this is going to be one of the first generations in American history where young people are going to probably be worse off than their parents. Probably it's, it's a done
1: deal. We it's are done deal. We are worse off than our parents. We are
0: worse off. I, so was that the issue, or was there some issue, or was there something about the campaign? Because you said when you first heard Bernie speak, you said to yourself, "This is the first time I've heard someone speaking something that really just
1: it was resonates values. in my soul." So what was what was it about based. it? It was values based. It was healthcare is a human right. Hmm. This is not some abstraction about something Mark said yeah. and. Power to all my Marxist scholars out there. Yeah, but like I said, I, I don't ever claim to be anything that I'm not. I, I don't. I, I wasn't a red diaper baby. I haven't done all the reading. I'm working yeah. on it. I'm playing catch up. I'm yeah. having you know uh, David Harvey on and trying to learn and ke- you know. But you don't have I, the little
0: red book in your pocket. I, <laughs> <laughs> you don't know all the Maoist principles I, and look, all, all those things. socialists. It's funny. I, I was a socialist for a very brief period of time. What happened? It's, it's well. It's very doctrinal. <laughs> (laughs) Like at least certain types, I should say. Sure, I don't even remember the name of the group. I was called. I think it was called like the Spartacus Youth or something at the University of Chicago back in the late nineteen nineties. I'm jealous
1: that you got your act together and like no, I didn't. I totally didn't. I
0: mean, if you saw where I went after that, you would not be saying (laughs) that. But it's very doctrinal. It's and it's it feels very rigid. So I get what you're saying. There's like a socialism that's practiced in the academy, and then there's socialism as someone like Bernie Sanders talks about it. And
1: I I think it's important. I think it's important to do the reading, right? I, I don't mean to like dismiss that or be anti-intellectual or say that there isn't a ton to learn because I think, you know, I recently joined Socialist Alternative and part of their recruitment process, they, they're not like DSA. You actually have to read some a lot of stuff and right. like kind of see if you agree ideologically with certain principles. And I really appreciated that project because it teaches you there's nothing new under the sun and there's a lot of um, historical precedent for what you imagine the future might be in this country?
0: Okay. What is this group again? I, I socialist
1: think, alternative. I don't think
0: I'm embarrassed now. Should I know about oh, no, that? It's okay. Fine. It's, it's be- fine. <laughs> okay.
1: So, do you know who Shama Sawant is? The Seattle City Councilwoman who really she really put um, fifteen dollar minimum wage on a map. Okay. She won it in Seattle and really sparked the national conversation about a fight for fifteen. Like okay. that's cool. her. Obviously, baby. I know about the fight for fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's her, that's her and her work. she's a very compelling person. And I've I had her on the podcast and. She was so compelling. And because she's a member of Socialist Alternative, or maybe I don't know if they have a figurehead, but she's the most sure. famous member. Um, I started to look into joining and I went to the website, like, oh, I'll just give them my ten dollars a month or whatever, sure. like I do for DSA, and that'll make me a member. And yeah. they wrote me an email back, like, that's not how it works. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to have a meeting with you so and so at three o'clock on Wednesdays, every Wednesday for the next two months. And I'm like, Okay, wow. that's we're doing this now. Uh-huh. Uh, But I learned a lot. And so I think it's important. But what drives my politics, and I said this, you know, at the end of, I think, the norm episode, is that ultimately, I'm a humanist. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what you call it. I don't, you know, but at the end of the day, I think that healthcare is a human right, because I believe in intrinsic human value. Mm -hmm. I think that we are lucky enough to live in a country where we have enough wealth, that there is no excuse. We are not in a resource constraint place. There's no excuse to leave people in the standard of living that they are in. I think when you say something like, you know, 40% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency, that there's three Americans that own more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country, that there's like six people in the world that own more than the bottom half of the world. At a certain point, if that doesn't make you angry and want to fight very hard, or alternatively, want to drop to your knees and sob, you're not thinking it through hard enough. Mm And you have bought into the expectation that that's just how the world is. And I never want to be inured to that kind of um, inequity. And I do think that growing up overseas had a role to play in me not kind of accepting the world as it is. Because I've seen what it's like in other places. And I know how good we have in many respects in America. And I know how a little bit, can go a very long way in a different context. I've seen how our standard of living raised dramatically when we moved from America to Kenya,
3: hmm.
1: and I've seen how your standard
0: of living increased. Of course, in the United States to Kenya, of course. Okay. In
1: in in the United States, my dad was working two jobs. Uh, he was a research chemist working at like Roche in like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. My mom was in a grad grad school program at NC State. She had two small kids. We were in public school. The public school was like putting my brother in slow learning classes because basically he was a quiet black kid. He was always an advanced reader and all of those kinds of things. My mother felt like she couldn't do anything about it. She couldn't afford for us to go to a, any better That's school. Yeah. She, we would like LARP at Montessori school per- periodically. She would like have us like spend the day there, like desperate to try to find some scholarship or something for us to go, but couldn't figure it out. And she just hacked She hacked. She life-hacked and figured out that she could become a teacher in the international school circuit, and so can my dad. He got his teaching certification, and he became a science teacher, and she was a school psychologist, and that's how we escaped. Wow. But, you know, that also feels dissonant, right? Because it's not fair that you get to enter this, you know, developing world economy, you know, global South economy. I'm sorry. I always forget the one that we're using, but, like... And now, you know, you can, everyone has a housekeeper and a gardener and you get to live in a bigger house and we get to go to the private school for free because wow. my parents teach there. Okay. But that's not fair. That's like, sure. it's kind of like a global kind of gentrification. Yeah, <laughs> right? And, you know, you're in an environment where, you know… There's, you know, actual children who are not wearing much in the way of clothes, holding their baby sibling, begging for money. I mean, like, I don't have to describe what poverty in the rest of the world is like to you and kind of the abjectness of it. And being confronted with that every day when I'm a kid and they're a kid and we're standing each other on the other side of this car window.
4: Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's just not an abstraction. And to be a black American and to know what the fate of my own community is in this country and the fate of my own family members are in this country. And to know that all of the evils of this country are disproportionately weighted on my own community, Mm -hmm. you know, and then here comes a guy who isn't assuming that there's always going to be this like 10% of people in deep poverty that all look like me. Sure. Um, And that there isn't going to be a bottom 50% of the country. That's always going to be food insecure. Disproportionately, who look like me. Yeah. You know, there. Uh-
0: and he doesn't have this fantasy narrative about America either. I mean, that's one of the things that's really appealing to a lot of people that he does seem to be speaking truth, which means acknowledging some of our mistakes, whether it's foreign policy and wars, oh, global poverty. Sure. I mean, he's someone who's been honest about things. And Talna Ko said this recently in a podcast, but true patriotism is not ignoring your flaws, right? right? It's, it's actually acknowledging them and, and getting yourself better. Right? right? That it's like being sick and just saying it's not healthy just to pretend you're not sick when you're sick. It's actually healthier to acknowledge you're sick and try and do something to medicate it.
1: Right.
0: Right. So, it's interesting. You're it sounds like you're talking about an experience where you are living in a state of relatively less privilege in the United States and you go to Kenya and you suddenly realize, "Wow, there's there's an entire world out there that is even less privileged than me and now I'm kind of at the top." I wonder how did your family respond to that because your mom is like such an activist type. Obviously, and like your the, dad... It,
1: I'm not going to say I'm like a 10-year-old who's consciously having all these kinds of thoughts, but I, I, I do think that having exposure to what feels like a real um, caprice in how various people live and how yeah. life goes... It's
0: just but if it's not for chance. the stroke of chance, I would be on the other side of this. Right. I would be not in the school. I'd be outside of the school. Correct. I would not have a housekeeper. I would be the housekeeper.
1: It happens. You know, my mom yeah. used to talk about she left the school in ninety eight and started working for the UN um offering psychosocial support to UN staff members and her region was East Africa. So she would travel I mean, she went further afield often, but her main region was East and South Africa. So she would, you know, be going to South Sudan and Somalia. And she mostly didn't talk in detail about like, experiences she had had some of which some 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 of it because it was dangerous and she didn't want us to worry but you know now that we're older dangerous how
0: like just just because she's in
1: uh conflict ridden
4: areas yeah or she okay. i mean
1: she's counseling you and staff members have been exposed to trauma and much of that trauma is like war trauma okay um you know vi- you know helicopters get shot down she'd have to go the earthquake happens in Haiti she went she's go. um yeah. you know she was sent to Afghanistan um, wow. in t- t- in t- 2001 Wow, um, that's part of why she she quit the UN when I was a freshman in college. In part because they kept trying to send her to Afghanistan, <laughs> and we we had just lost my father that year. And she was like, "I'm not going to orphan my kids." Wow. So, you know, I so I just feel like I I don't, I I I feel like squishy and crunchy and like preachy talking about it, but it seems to me to be very obvious that. If you can do better, we should do better. <laughs> People yeah. like, I'm so sorry. Like, but that's that. That's what Bernie feels like. He's just saying yeah. the dumb, obvious Things. thing. Yeah, yeah. Healthcare is a human right. Housing is a human right. Yeah. Every other country in the world has some kind of, uh, you know, similar situated affluent country has universal healthcare. Why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we? Yeah. Why and don't we it, tax the rich?
0: And it, and it does better on all fronts. <laughs> it's not just that it's better for from a human rights perspective. We save money. You know, it's like it's... Medicare is just one of these things, and healthcare is one of these things that's so bizarre. And, I mean, the argument you hear on the other side, and I had Ezra Klein on the podcast, he's probably most known for this, is, mm-hmm. is you have to accept the political reality, right? That there's there's only certain configuration of politics that will allow something like Medicare for all to happen. So, when you go too far, it's just you don't get nothing at all. I mean... So why did you find? Yeah, I see. (laughs) You're like, (laughs) I wish this were a video right now because Brianna's voice is face is just perfectly capturing. I think the sentiment she's trying to express. You don't even say anything; you just show that face. But why is it that you are not amenable to that argument when people say this is just not possible in the United States?
1: Because it's quite obviously possible. Possible. Okay. What? Oh, what is the magic that happens in Canada? Like with this mystical, uh, terribly different country known as Canada, like there are real there are real reasons why we don't have universal health care in the United States, right? Like it, that that also wasn't chance. That was lobbying from the American Medical Association.
3: Yeah,
1: that was partly related to our history of segregation um, and not wanting to provide free health care to yeah. a mixed race population. There there were a series of historical events that happened coming out of World War II where we like we were like about to get it and then it didn't happen like the idea that this is like a fixed reality you have to be Mm -hmm. delusional yeah and then there are a lot there's a there's a category of commentator who spends all their time trying to be prescriptive and not at all having a conversation about how to change what might be a political reality in the moment Mm -hmm. and maybe they think that they are not political actors and that's not their job but at very least we need to get, get out of the way and mm-hmm. stop shoring up the status quo as a necessary outcome as just the way the world is that we all have to accept as though that kind of benign neglect is not harmful Um, and the, the, the tension this is one of the useful things to learn from doing a little reading into the history of socialist movements I mean the tension has always been between one camp that is trying to figure out, I mean, two camps that are ultimately trying to figure out where the edge of the possible is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some folks will say, well, you're being too, you're going too far. Um, you're going so far that you're going to destroy our ability to get what we could actually get in this moment. And there's one camp that gets accused of being incrementalist and not going far enough. And it is very difficult in the moment to assess what camp is right. But everyone is trying to find that edge. And my concern is that some people like Ezra Klein, in my view, grossly underestimate where that edge is. Yeah, Grossly underestimate it. And to be having a conversation about how America can't have Medicare for all, as we were at the end of a campaign season in the beginning of what's going to be now, obviously, a multiple year global pandemic that's taking millions of lives. It's not, at a certain point, it's not a question of can we. We must. Mm-hmm. World War II, you know, we, <laughs> we, we talk about having like a, a war, war, a World War style mobilization, but people just say that. They don't mean it. They don't do it. You know, we went from producing like a plane, I don't know what we were doing, <laughs> but obviously we ramped up an incredible amount of production for a war effort. People, you know, saving up their, melting down their bobby pins and, you know, not using nylons and drawing lines at the back of their legs and growing their own victory garden. So that I mean, there is, there is a world where we know what it feels like to mobilize, the way that we need to be mobilizing for this climate crisis. Yeah. But people will adopt that kind of rhetoric to win a general election without yeah. having to work for it.
0: Yeah. And we don't even have to go back that far because you look at COVID-19 and it's, you know, if we demonstrate this sort of leadership on the broader systemic issues as we did on the immediate emergency... Because COVID is going to kill a lot of people. Lack of healthcare has killed a lot of people too.
1: Yes. And so why COVID, don't we have the same rhetoric? People
0: a year. Absolutely. So why can't we have the same rhetoric? Why can't we have politicians like Bernie declaring a human rights crisis in the same way we've declared a public health because crisis because nobody for believes.
1: Nobody believes it's possible to do better. Yeah. And people like and again, I don't mean this in a personal way, and I hope Ezra Klein comes on our podcast someday. Yeah. But the he's an
0: amazing guy. Yeah. He's really, really. People
1: smart. like him, people like the and again, I know personal animosity to the pod safe guys, but people like them. What they end up doing, the effect of their political project, is to convince people that this is the best we can do yeah. right now. They get on the airwaves twice a week and say, Joe Biden's doing his best, Kamala Harris is doing her best, the squad are doing their best.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm sorry, you can't look at the world with, you know, millions of people threatened with eviction right now. Yeah. Like over like 12 million people threatened with eviction. Hmm. You know, 600,000 Americans dead from COVID Hmm. at this point. And all of the crises that predated that. Look, People will wag their finger at me and say I'm ridiculous for complaining about my student debt. But how messed up is the system where someone who has, is as privileged as I am and have had all the opportunities that I have am still feeling shafted rightly or wrongly yeah. by the system? They have miscalibrated this delicate balance of the American dream and how many people think that they can credibly take advantage of it. Yeah. And that's what gave Bernie that opening because everyone could see something was wrong. And I think that now we're seeing some unprecedented level of spending around COVID and that's great. But the reason that you're seeing that is because I think even the political status quo understands how tenuous the balance is Mm -hmm. and they've got to give enough so that everybody can go back to business as usual. And you look at this fight, these fights that are happening over right now about the suddenly everyone's upset about the child tax credits continuing Mm -hmm. because it was too good to be true. You can't have poor people. You can't lift half the kids out of poverty. Yeah, we can't we can't have that. We can't have people not wanting to work these minimum wage jobs. You can't have people like walking out at McDonald's and not. I need my cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. They need to go back. We can't raise the minimum wage. It doesn't matter if it's the longest period without a minimum wage raise since we got the minimum wage in the New Deal. No, no, no. Some good liberal will come along and tell you there are some perfectly good reasons why we can't raise the minimum wage. Look, Joe Manchin doesn't want it. What am I going to do? The parliamentarian said we couldn't do it, so we can't do it. Yeah. This, look, this is this is the political reality. Yeah. And the political reality never includes actually going to West Virginia, the poorest state in the union, and talking to people directly about why they need to be camped out in front of Joe Manchin's house until he acquiesces and agrees to, at minimum, a $15 minimum wage yeah. and calls him out for all of the business interest money that he's taken to have the opposite opinion.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: The, the, the political reality doesn't include the idea that a small number of progressives in the House, three, four, five, can hold up any bill, any bill at this point because of how narrow the margins are, the same way that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are doing, or the fact that Bernie Sanders could be just as much of a pain in the ass as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema were being, and that they need agreement from both sides mm-hmm. for, for, either, for, for anything to happen. That is also part of the political reality, but that doesn't get spoken out loud. Yeah. Because if Bernie does it, if the squad does it, they're causing a problem, even though the overwhelming majority of American people are behind them in terms of the policy prescription that that they'd be fighting for. Yeah. And the entire mainstream media establishment is fixated on this task of making everybody believe that the way things are are because it just has to be that way. Because people are good, and they want better, and they know that. So they have to give folks a script that makes them accept the disaster scape that we're living in.
0: Yeah. That's such a good point that when we talk about the political reality of the situation, there's a way that it always is used to denigrate anyone who's trying to challenge the system. Right. I mean, the political reality of the situation, as you put it, is that Bernie can use a filibuster, you know, to push mark progressive change. He's just as much a potential obstacle as Joe Manchin. But when Joe, when Joe Manchin does it, it's just, oh, you know, this is just part of the system.
1: Can't do anything to while, exert while pressure. While Bernie does it, then
0: it, it seems like it's something more fantastic or unusual. And it... It kind of reminds me, have you heard of the end of history fallacy?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay,
0: yeah. So this is actually, you know, I don't know if you had this professor, a Harvard professor, who wrote this paper in science. And there aren't many psychologists who publish papers in science. So when they do, it's pretty notable. But he wrote this paper about how... It's a guy named Dame Gilbert. Uh, mm-hmm. My cousin who went to Harvard, likes his work a lot too. And he, he's written a lot of really cool stuff about happiness, which I'd actually... Oh,
1: yeah. He, he taught that happiness class that was yeah, so popular. Yeah, yeah. It's a really
0: popular class yeah. at Harvard. And he wrote a book on happiness, and I'm forgetting the name of it. But it's a really good book. It's I mean, it's kind of one of these dumb self-help books. But sure. at the same time, it's done by someone who's actually looked at the data and the evidence. So it's, it's, it actually has some good insights. But he wrote this paper in science called The End of History Fallacy. And it's about how when it comes to our beliefs, our preferences, and our values... We massively unpredict how much change we, is possible, but when we look backwards at history, we see an enormous amount of change. So if you ask somebody, you know, how much of your preference is going to change, like in the next twenty years, they're going to say, "Oh no, no, things things are the way they are." I, you know, I like eating cheeseburgers, and I'm going to continue like eating cheeseburgers for the next twenty years. And you know, I'm somebody who buys Apple products; I'm going to continue buying Apple products. But when you ask them how much have we changed over the last thirty years, they're like, "Oh, I didn't even have a computer thirty years ago." I, mm-hmm. I, I live in a rural area and I didn't even know what McDonald's was. And so they look pat in the past and they say, yes, I've changed in all these ways. And they look into the future and they don't realize it, it's actually the realistic thing is to expect change because right. that's kind of the nature of the world. But the funny thing about the research is the place where people most mispredict change is values, is like mm-hmm. ideology. They always think that the ideology I have now, whatever political view I have now about what's possible, what's not possible, what's right and what's what's not – is fixed that i'm mm-hmm. i'm i'm at the end of history. Well, in reality, those are the things that often change the most, but people just don't recognize it. And it's yeah. it's just it's i mean it's a reflection of the political system we live in and maybe even the basic structure of human psychology that we yeah. don't see the possibility of change even though when we look back behind us, we recognize that change did happen. Even Bernie between 2016 and 2020,
1: there were massive changes. I mean, there were certainly some <laughs> for for better or for worse I mean I I had a professor my favorite professor in law school his name was John Hanson he's a law and economics professor but I don't know if he describes himself as a socialist or a Marxist but in retrospect huh. it feels that, that way but he f- flew under the radar right because you know the law and e- economics guys are supposed to be conservative and he's so he's like in yep. a serious area um, but he used a lot of so- social psychology in his lessons to he taught torts and then I took him for corporate law uh And in the tort context, he used social psychology to talk a lot about how the outcomes in these cases that we consider to be driven by the facts mm-hmm. <laughs> are really driven by everything else in the world. So we'll, we opened with like the McDonald's coffee spill case, and you know, with the in the public imagination, it's this woman, and she was clumsy, and she was irresponsible driving with hot coffee, and then she sued and got all this money, and we need tort reform because these these um, plaintiffs are just going buck wild and ruining corporations, right? Like that was the '90s narrative, but of course, that's not at all what happened, right? She was. An elderly woman parked. Her son was driving in the parking lot. She spilled a little bit of coffee on her lap, and the coffee was super heated because McDonald's saves like a dollar, like a cent a cup Hmm. by keeping it at this super high temperature. And she got like, what's the worst kind of burn? First degree, I think. Third.
0: I think it's the higher is the worst. The kind
1: that goes to the bone. She got just for dropping coffee in her lap. Yeah, and it like burned off her genital. Oh, like she went burned. It like burned down to through her pelvis. She had like um sweatpants on and they like adhered to her skin wow. because of how hot it was and the the um judgment she got was w- calculated it was one day's worth of mcdonald's coffee sales wow so to the extent that it was a huge number yeah. it's nothing to mcdonald's it's one day's worth of mcdonald's a coffee, coffee sale. sales yeah. and of course the you know the judgment got um decreased she didn't even get that much money and you know she's laughing so he, he was talking about how all of these narratives about deservedness mm mm-hmm. Impact how we perceive all this case law. You know, the one where the uh, little girl Irish immigrant gets off the boat at at Pearl Harbor. Uh, LOL. What's it called? Statue of Liberty is Ellis Island. Ellis
4: Island.
1: Yes. And um, you know, she can't read, and there's signs on the wall that say you must get vaccinated. There's some risk, of something bad happening, but she can't read, and she's a little girl. And some man with a lab coat comes and like injects her, and she's the one out of a million cases that actually has a bad reaction to a vaccine, guys this is not an anti-vax message. This happens just to be a case that happened. (laughs) So, um, you know, the case law, the judge said, well, the girl knew, like she assumed the risk. And so we had this uh, broader conversation about what does it mean to assume risk? And Mm -hmm. what are the imbalances of power that actually exist in the real world? Of course, she's not going to object. She just was on a boat for three weeks by herself, like sleeping in her own vomit. What's she going to do? Go back to Ireland? Like, also, she she didn't, she can't read. She can't assume. So all of these... Assumptions that are built into everything, and how our legal system is a reflection of how morally as a society we have a we could justify everything.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The just world hypothesis yeah. is all about our ability to say, "Well, there must be some reason." things are bad.
3: Mm-hmm. If bad
1: things happen to me, it's because the world isn't fair. If good things happen to me, it's because I deserve it. Yeah. And one of the arguments that he makes in this class is that when change happens, it's because the gap between how the world is and how the world should be is so big that we can no longer justify it yeah. with all these rationales. And that's what happened And like the civil rights movement, when suddenly on TV, you're seeing all of these gratuitously evil ways that black people are being treated in the streets that weren't visible before. You have the George Floyd protests when we all watch nine minutes, somebody being throttled to death in the street. You know, and I don't know what it's going to take for people to do what needs to be done about the climate crisis or the eviction crisis or the homelessness crisis or one in five kids being food insecure before COVID and all of the horrible things that are happening in this country. But obviously, TV and cell phones exist, and that's not enough. And when leftists, I think, continue to put pressure on progressives, it's not because there's animosity for people like Cori Bush and ASC and Ilhan Omar, who obviously are fighting so much harder than neoliberals and, and corporatists in the Democratic Party. Obviously, that's true. But what it feels like is that somebody needs to do something very visible and very big to continue to draw the contrast between what people in Congress could be doing and what they are doing. And when ultimately they serve to continue to justify the Biden campaign and the choices that are being made, to not point out that things could be done differently, that the whole parliamentarian rigmarole earlier this year was a complete farce, Mm -hmm. the parliamentarian could be fired, that there's no reason we don't have the $15 minimum wage right now. Yeah. If you stay silent on something like that, at a certain point, you're complicit.
0: Explain what the parliamentarian thing was and what happened oh, kind yeah. of with the For filibuster of and budget reconciliation. Just, you know, because a Listeners lot of people don't. Listeners to Bad
1: Faith Podcast. <laughs> we certainly talk this one to death. Yeah. Um, so the CARES Act um, was a must-pass bill. Remember, Biden's newly president. We just kind of got some vaccines, but nobody's really taken it yet. We haven't figured out a way to um, disseminate them through the public. The feeling is that Donald Trump has been very negligent in this regard and that it's Biden's job now to, like, fast-track this Mm -hmm. stuff. And we've got to pass this act, which has all of this money that goes to all of these things, including eviction relief and much-needed stuff, right? Part of that is a $15 minimum wage, which, as I mentioned earlier, hasn't been – we haven't had a minimum wage raise since uh, Bush was president.
4: Yeah. Uh,
1: and what ended up happening was Bernie Sanders was very confident that this was something that could be done via but uh, reconciliation, right? So it could pass through with the rest of the package without any Republican votes. Re- re- reconciliation is a process by which you don't need um, to beat the filibuster. You don't need a supermajority to pass something. You only need a majority. So mm-hmm. because we have 50 Democrats in the Senate plus Kamala Harris is the tiebreaker, reconciliation means you can get stuff through without Meaning Republicans, but you still need to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and all of the conservative Democrats on board. Okay, the parliamentarian is a administrative position that gives an advisory opinion that is in no way binding mm-hmm. on what can and cannot be done under the rules of the Senate. And in the past, when a parliamentarian has um, gone against the interests of an administration. A president will just fire Fire them. George Bush did it to get his tax cuts and to drill in the Arctic. Like, they do it all the time. Democrats, however, if you want to be cynical, the argument is that there's not so much of a gap between Republicans and Democrats. But Democrats have to come up with reasons, excuses for why they don't do do the right thing because their brand is we're good and we want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And the parliamentarian has become a useful tool in that regard. So Bernie consults with this budget CBO people that says this this satisfies reconciliation requirements. About a week or so before the parliamentarian's ruling, Joe Biden starts saying, I don't think it's going to pass muster with the parliamentarian. Hmm. Oh, what do you, I, I, wonder, yeah. I wonder what that means about what the parliamentarian's ruling is going to be. Of course, the parliamentarian says no. Now, at this point, they could have still pushed through a vote on the entire package with the $15 minimum wage and forced people like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin to vote up or down, right? Because the parliamentarian's ruling doesn't actually mean anything,
4: mm-hmm.
1: right? And they could have forced Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema on the record. And then the seven other Democrats who voted ultimate, we'll get to that. They could have forced everyone to have to be on the record in front of their constituents where $15 minimum wage is overwhelmingly popular to say, no, I voted against it. Remember, in Florida, where Donald Trump won a $15 minimum wage, passed on the ballot this past fall with 60% of the vote. In Florida, 60% of the vote. This was not a close one, okay? Republican governor, Republican state. Instead of doing that, uh, Chuck Schumer, in his capacity as Senate leader, takes the $15 minimum wage out of the bill. Again, nobody forced him to do that. He did that on his own. At that point, Bernie Sanders brings an amendment to get it put back into the bill. And that's what everybody voted on, right? That famous Kirsten Cinema giving the down no vote.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So technically, it was about the $15 minimum wage, but it wasn't actually an up-down vote on the minimum wage. It was an up-down vote on whether or not to put the $15 minimum wage back in the bill. Mm-hmm. Now, if the $15 minimum wage had just stayed in the bill, okay, you would have needed, and one, I think symbolically, you would have had to people people to have to vote down the entire COVID package yeah. because they didn't, they didn't want, want an enormously paid. popular policy, yeah. $15 minimum wage, in the middle of an economic crisis, the likes of which we haven't seen since at least 2008. Yeah. But none of that happened because of this very special dance that happens between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, And there's this theory called the rotating villain theory, where if it weren't jo- Joe Manchin, it would be somebody else. Somebody else will always come up with an excuse for why they can't do something. So this idea that we can just vote Joe Manchin out, it, it's, it's, it's not really how it works. There was a political article a couple months back um, in which they uncovered that there were like 10 to 12 Democrats who secretly were very happy that it went that way because they didn't want to have to publicly say that they were against the 50 dollars minimum wage, but they are. Yeah. And all of this goes kind of unnoticed because the mainstream media never covers this.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's
1: never framed in these ways. People like Bernie Sanders are never allowed to talk specifically about these issues on TV. Everyone's talking in seven-minute sound bites. The, the media figures are very happy to have a villain. Oh, Joe Manchin. What an awful guy on his houseboat eating pizza. Terrible fella. And he is a terrible fella, Mm -hmm. but that disguises the extent to which he is just the mascot for the broader agenda of many, many, many Democrats. I'd argue the bulk of the Democratic Party.
0: Yeah, and what do you think that is? What do you think is motivating them ultimately? Do you think it's it's just the poverty of their own ability to envision a different future, or do you think there's something more corrupt happening? You think it's
3: money?
1: (laughs) I think it's oligarchy. Like I think that we're the only country in the world where people act like we don't have a deeply corrupt two-party system where both parties are equally bought off mm-hmm. by the powers that be. People will say things. I was at a I was at a Google event during the campaign during a CBC weekend, Congressional Black Caucus. Mm-hmm. And it was all, you know, these black Google employees who were like, representation, we work at Google too. And like, this is the apex, right, of like what mm-hmm. we're supposed to be achieving. This is Martin Luther King's dream is all of these black people working at Google. And... Uh, there was a, um, they were talking about politically like what they wanted and needed. And somebody raised how like, you know, Donald Trump was so bad and like, we just got to get Donald Trump out and who's the best candidate to be Donald Trump and all this stuff. And we went around the room. We were supposed to like ask questions and bring stuff up. And I'm sitting there representing the campaign. So I'm like, I don't know how spicy I'm supposed to be in this moment, (laughs) but I'm like, low key. Didn't Google give money to Trump? And I like searched it on my phone. I was like, 10 out of 10. He did. Yeah, They did. And it's, and it's like, Facebook, all these, every corporation gives money to both sides yeah. just in case whoever wins will owe them a, a favor. I mean, it sounds so parochial. I don't even want to say it out loud. And it makes you sound like some conspiracy theory nut job or something. But like, go to Open Secrets. Mm-hmm. There was a direct correlation. Jim Clyburn, who very neatly secured South Carolina for Joe Biden, Literally takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry than any other person in Congress. Yeah, how many times have you heard that said on TV?
0: Not too often, and I doubt there's much of a pharmaceutical industry in South Carolina.
1: Well, that's the thing. So the the many 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 terrible companies give a lot of money to the Congressional Black Caucus. Interesting. And it's not because black people are more corrupt or more susceptible to corruption or anything like that. It's not because they're black, but the issue is. Because of the way districts are drawn and the way the world is, black electeds are more frequently in lower income districts mm-hmm. and they have the same obligations to raise money and stay in Congress like everybody else. I, I'm sure you've heard about how 90% of a congressperson's job is to be on the phone raising money. Yeah, And so if you have a longer way to go because you're not Nancy Pelosi who has like 300 millionaires in their phone, <laughs> then you are going to be more susceptible to like the... Uh, industry group against taking lead paint out of walls yeah like when you look that there it's literally groups like that it's like these advocacy groups that are they sound like tenant groups or somehow like housing advocates but they're all like the worst things that hurt black people let's yeah. keep lead in walls <laughs> let's let's um make sure you know a lot of like renters landlords pharmaceutical companies um you know just just like the who's coca-cola mm-hmm. the who's who of terrible people in the world just giving tons of money to the cbc yeah and when you know, the South Carolina happened, imagine if there had been a conversation that was sophisticated. Instead of, this must mean black people like Biden and Bernie is a racist. There was a conversation about what motivates people in different kinds of ways. Because we all know that if Jim Clyburn had said, oh, okay, Bernie Sanders, I want you to win. Mm-hmm. They would have voted for Bernie Sanders. And what does that mean about black people? Suddenly, suddenly they're different people?
3: Yeah.
1: Suddenly, Joe Biden didn't eulogize Strom Thurmond and Bernie Sanders wasn't doing core advocacy at the University yeah. of Chicago protesting. Like, the people are who they are, and voters are malleable and susceptible to different kinds of things and motivated by different kinds of things. And our political conversation just completely misses 99.9% of it. Mm-hmm. And it's just—it's incredibly reductive, and it enables this whole charade to go on and on and on. People are going to be mad that I pronounce it that way. The whole charade to go on and on and on. <laughs> is that a thing? People
0: get it's mad about how you. Yes. <laughs> it's one way, like more privileged and elite, yes. than the other. Or charade is the the bad it's way. It's the bourgeois way to charade, say it. Okay, so. And I apologize. Your socialist friends are going to be very upset at you, Brianna. <laughs> so I, this this dovetails. I know you got to go at some point. No, that's so, fine. I can just I, I, this guy. I want to. I want to ask you about your position on identity politics because I think that this okay. really relates to some of what you've written about identity politics mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting because so many leftist critiques of the mainstream democratic party are focused on identity but yours is not
4: mm.
0: and i'm i before you go into and you've talked a lot about your your actual leftist critique but what is the problem with the identity politics critique of of the mainstream democratic party or frankly republican party today
1: well The thing that the Republicans hit on, I think accurately, much to the chagrin of Democrats, is that there is a way that identity has become so reductive um, in our political conversation, in our broader conversation, frankly, that it undermines any allowance for individual thoughts, feelings, instincts, it really does start to obscure the existence of an individual.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, obviously, so every Chinese
0: person is the same. Every black person is the same. Every gay person is the same. Yes, it,
1: yeah. when convenient. Yeah,
4: when right? Convenient. So, so,
1: black people vote for Democrats. Uh-huh. You know, white people are, are allowed. Generally speaking, white people are allowed to have more diversity in America because every you know it's like the standard, you know, Vitruvian form that gets to stand in as the norm in uh-huh. America. Um. But what that ends up doing, I mean, and and of course, 90, whatever, 4%, whatever it is, percent of black people do vote for Democrats. But there is a way that it's talked about where your identity and your identity of interest, your racial identity or your gender identity or your sexual orientation identity are so completely mapped on to your intellectual identity, Mm -hmm. your cognitive identity, that it drives people to really bizarre conclusions on the, on the individual basis. And it also creates a presumption that black people or gay people or women who are in an elite sphere still have the same identity of interest with working class or middle class, gay or women or black people or what have you, because class identity is never a part of that identity equation. Hmm. And that's how you get to a place where people are like, "Well, Kamala Harris is a black woman, why don't you like her more uh-huh. when and this is not a leftist critique black uh, kamala Harris is very unpopular among black people across the political spectrum for reasons
3: uh-huh.
1: um but that doesn't, you know, the the narrative on the high level, on the mainstream level, is still, well, if Kamala runs, she'll do well with black people.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: If
1: Kamala, and it, it causes you to miss all kinds of things. So I wrote that article back in 2017 because Kamala had just won her Senate seat. And everyone thought she was the next Obama. She mm-hmm. was the next big thing. Breathless takes about Kamala Harris and how wonderful she was. And we had just come off of 2016 where every take was about how Hillary was a woman and everything she did wrong. Every critique she she got, rather, was because of sexism. Uh-huh. Do I think that there was sexism against Hillary Clinton? Absolutely. It's undeniable. Do I think that Hillary Clinton had a worse position on abortion than Bernie Sanders? Correct. Uh-huh. Do yeah. I think it's absurd to say Hillary, that that wasn't true because Hillary is a woman Hillary, and Bernie yeah. wasn't? Yeah. Like, it... People, identity is being used in a way politically that makes you ignore the the reality that's right in front of your eyes. Yeah. So, for instance, when I wrote that identity politics article,
0: this the, is the thing in Current Affairs or in New York in Magazine. In Current Affairs, okay. So this is the article that went viral back in twenty seventeen sort of, yeah. and, yeah. and got you on the map for the got first time. Got me on the map. Yeah.
1: There was a write up in the Daily Coast where someone literally started off their write up saying, "If this article hadn't been written by another white person." I would consider some of the things that were said in it. But I Googled her. And I I know that she's, she is white. And I'm so tired of these white people who think that they can just say X, Y, and Yikes. Z for people of color. And I was like, I have a very specifically spelled name. There is no alternative. Brianna with an H, Gray. <laughs> like, how did how do they even if, this is what how I'm did saying. They make this
0: mistake? Was you, cognitive
1: means... dissonance. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm black in my avatar. I have always yeah, had a picture of myself.
0: Uh, yeah. For those of you who are not understanding this, just Google (laughs) Brianna Joy Gray right now. Pretty easy to figure out that she's probably not white.
1: Now, look, back then there were fewer pictures of me in the world because, again, I was anonymous largely. Uh But I had people on Twitter. To this day, sometimes I will get into Twitter fights with people and they will say, well... You're white, so you don't know. Yeah. Or you wow. should talk to more black. A white person will say, you should talk to more black people. Yeah. I was like, literally everyone in my life is black. And that's like the finishing
0: stroke of their argument. That,
4: yeah. Yes.
1: And, and that was what was so toxic <laughs> about 2016 is nobody was making arguments against Bernie Sanders. They were making arguments against the idea the of, a black, of, a, yeah. of a white man being president, yeah. so much so that Hillary Clinton became non-white. Yeah. And these Hillary supporters would be like, well, Bernie is a white man. And I was yeah. like, why are you saying white? There are only white people in this race. I mean I voted for a black VP because I voted for Jill Stein. Mm-hmm. But you all voted for her for not, <laughs> nobody but white people in this race. Yeah. So why are you even bringing that up? Why is that even in your sentence? He's a white man. She's a white woman. You say he's a man? Mm-hmm. If you think that's material, I mean it's not for substantive reasons that we can discuss, you know. But th- but that that's how it it got it got to a point where people can't, you know, I am I am I'm am called things like the Candace Owens of the left. What does Why that mean? well, well, Candace Owens and I are both black hmm. and we don't subscribe to the political identity that we're supposed to as black women. Hmm. Now I certainly don't agree with anything Candace Owens has to say. Sure. But I think it would be more constructive if people even met Candace, you know, criticized Candace Owens on the merits of her argument instead of calling her Uncle Tom or all the other epithets that are leveraged at black people. I recently had a very well-received debate with Glenn Lowry, Mm -hmm. who is perhaps the most prominent, one of the most prominent black conservatives that are alive today. And I think that the reason it was so well-received, we disagreed politely for 90 minutes or so. And I think it was very well received because I disagreed with him on the basis of the words that came out of his mouth and not calling him a coon or Uncle Tom or pretending somehow that he was ideologically motivated by somebody else or like the puppet being puppet mastered by some white person or something else that undermined his autonomy and intelligence as a person. I disagree with everything that came out of his mouth. But I took him on in good faith. And I think that a lot of what's wrong with the discourse is that I think liberals are siloed more than Republicans are, especially in like cities where a lot of this media is coming out of. I went to Harvard. People went to these liberal Northeastern institutions. You never really had to have your views challenged in the way that the minority Republicans in those environments did. And I remember my Republican, you know, I had one Republican friend in college and he always knew exactly what his talking points were. He was very smart. He went on to clerk for Alito. <laughs>
3: um,
1: you know, but he, he always knew. And I knew if I was going to argue with him, I had to be prepared.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Liberals aren't prepared on the whole. Many leftists aren't prepared. And so they come into these arguments. They come into these spaces like they did in 2016, having a fight with Bernie bros, mm-hmm. in quotation marks. And they didn't have arguments. All they had was he's a, he's a he's man. A yep. He's a white guy. And I know abstractly like people of color good. These broad principles good. Republican bad. Mm-hmm. And you could almost watch people's brains like glitch. Like they couldn't quite figure out how to put their words on things. Yeah. And I'm not mad at anybody. It was a growing experience for a lot of people and it was a difficult transition. But you got to get through it. We got to hold each other's hands and figure this out and get through it. Because that kind of black and white thinking is a part of what has enabled the Democratic Party to pretend to be something that it's not for so long. Yeah, Neoliberal, they, they completely abandoned the labor class. Basically after the 70s. Fully embrace neoliberalism. Bill Clinton was the apotheosis of the third-way project. And there's no longer this same investment in unions and labor as once was. Neoliberals on both sides of the political spectrum are advantaged by having lower labor density. The ability to withhold one's labor and grind the gears of the economy to a a halt are one of the only ways that regular people have ever had any power in the world. They have both parties have systemically undermined the unions and the ability for labor to have that same power. You you hear very few people talk about the strikes that have been springing up all across the country in increasing numbers over the last few years, by the way. The mainstream media almost never touches this, never covers it. You wouldn't think it was happening. Um, And this as a stand in for being a fighter for the working class, it's become identity. So the difference between Republicans and Democrats, two corporate parties, is that Democrats are nice to black people and and Hispanics and gay people and will fly the appropriate flag on the appropriate day, which is, you know, I guess better than not not doing that. Sure. (laughs) And Republicans are mean and they will will rally their base using – Racism and misogyny and nationalist dog whistling and anti-immigrant fear-mongering. That's bad. Don't like that. Don't care for that at all. So I guess I'll vote for a Democrat. But substantively, nobody is offering you anything. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders had to fight tooth and nail at the end of 2016 to get the Democratic Party to even add a $15 minimum wage to its platform. In 2016. Even adding it to the platform and then it's in the platform, but obviously no one's going to fight for it. Yeah. Neither party. And so when someone like Trump comes along and pretends to be a populist, who pretends to like call out the corporate elite and say, I'm going to do something different. Yeah. People pay attention. When Bernie comes along and says that unexpectedly, his campaign got traction well, so. in 2016. Yeah. And if you want to fight the rise of right-wing fascism, which is not going away just cuz Trump's going away. You need to offer a left-wing alternative that doesn't ignore the conditions that the overwhelming majority of Americans are living in, the deep precarity that like half the country is toiling in and which has only gotten worse over the course of COVID. The country moved on after 2009, like 40% of 30% of Americans, 40% of black Americans didn't lose sorry. That uh black Americans didn't lose 40% of their net worth. White of their net worth in the recession. We all just traipsed by like that didn't happen. All these people who were like facing retirement just at a 30, 40% discount like that didn't happen. Like there's not something deeply messed up in our country or we don't have pensions or any kind of support in old age. We're just hoping that the house that you bought 20 years ago appreciated. In a world where we had redlining and entire communities didn't even have access to that kind of real estate until... My mother was like five years old when the Civil Rights Act was passed. Yeah. Do you know what I
0: mean? Yeah, I think California is in many ways the best example of this because California is a, is a state where, you know, we had Kamala Harris as our senator, and it's it's considered an anti-Trump bastion in the fight against racism and sexism and homophobia. And then you look at what's actually happening in California. We have the highest poverty rate in the nation. Yeah, housing crises increased dramatically. You know, you see income growth that's basically non-existent. And for the bottom 50%, it's actually declining. And yet for the last 20, 25 years, California has been controlled by the Democratic Party, Correct. not the Republican Party. And and I think there have to be some a- questions asked about why this is the a case.
1: Campaign. So I guess
0: <laughs> to steel man the identity politics position though, I, I think what a lot of people would probably say is that identity just matters to people. So even if it is the case that our material well-being is not improving, it still matters a lot to me that I have a president who doesn't say racist shit,
2: that, that we like have that.
0: diversity in, in <laughs> positions of power, that they're women, they're LGBTQ folks. So you're just kind of missing the point. And I, I think back at this old book, I think Thomas Frank wrote about mm-hmm. why Republicans, like, while well, these poor Republicans keep voting for mm-hmm. economic policies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why, why they're voting against... And, you know, in a sense, it's a puzzle. But then when you think about the fact that many of these white Americans just don't care about economics, they care about the fact that America's just Going into other people's hands. You know, this is just something that matters more to me. So, so, and, and I think this is kind of the inverse of that. For mm-hmm. for for progressives or leftists, maybe it's just the case that people don't care as much about the material conditions they're living in. They care more about just having representation, having diversity, having these people represent them who reflect the values and, and the diversity that they want to see in their own country. I mean, what how do you respond to someone who says that?
1: So I think you're right to link those two things together. Okay. Um, sometimes liberals will say this as a slam dunk. They'll be like, well, white racism is also identity politics. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's not a slam dunk. That's accurate. You guys are both doing identity politics. At the the whole country is swinging on a political uh, fulcrum of identity politics. And everybody's ignoring that nobody's getting anything that actually is meaningful to them and changing their life. Uh-huh. Now, on the fringes, I'm not going to say that you know, abortion rights are relevant, Right. You know, um, if there's some like anti-trans bathroom bill that's stoking hatred in your state, like that's relevant. I'm not saying that these things aren't relevant uh, and meaningful. And there's not in many cases a meaningful difference between what you're going to get if you vote for a Democrat and Republican. But there is a game of chess being played where the parties have agreed to swap pieces and have exchanges periodically to make it look like it's a real game. But it's one person moving from one side of the board to the other. Yeah. And you don't want to play chess. <laughs> you want housing security and health care. Um, so it is not, I think, that republic conservatives, white people, whomever, I think are intrinsically biased against policies that will help people of color too. that is a, that is a line that liberals love love to say. They love to say there's no point in trying to appeal to these voters with economic policies because they're, they're they will vote against their interests if it means it will hurt a black person
3: mm-hmm.
1: okay And there is some truth to that right I wrote about this in a, in a New York mag article that I'm very proud of that was a response to a Todd Nisi Coates' piece back in 2017, uh, his first white president piece. There are studies that will show that if you frame a policy in racialized terms, it's less likely that white people will support it. But less likely is not not at all. Uh Okay. At the same time, liberals make that argument. If we racialize something, fewer white people will like it. They will go out of their way to racialize policies that even are sometimes are universal in nature. Right. So. There's this dance that happens where it's like universal health care is going to help everybody. It's universal. is what it's called. Fifty dollar minimum wage will help everyone. But then, you know, sometimes you go into one environment or another. Uh, let's say you're going to speak to a black community. It might be worth saying, you know, if we got a 15 dollar minimum wage, we mean that 38 percent of black people got a raise. That's true. Mm-hmm. And I think you should say that if you're addressing an audience. But what has happened is because liberals identify themselves, Democrats identify themselves through identity, an identity lens almost exclusively, they almost won't even talk about a policy. You can't get uh, Don Lemon to mention a policy unless it is explicitly and always framed as a racialized policy. Hmm. So you might get Joanne Reed to say, black women have more student debt than anybody else in the country. But you're not going to get a straightforward kind of, we need to cancel student debt argument out of her. Hmm. And that's fine sometimes, but someone at some point has to make the pitch to so white people, too. Sure. Who are, I truly need people to internalize this, like 75% of the country, if you count white Latinos, who vote yeah. like white non-Hispanics. Um, So... You know, this, this, this is trade off where it's like there's this constantly this liberal conversation about how oh, you're betraying your values, you're throwing black and brown people under the bus if you don't say X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, say X, Y, and Z. But recognize that part of the power of a Bernie Sanders message is that these universal policies do disproportionately help X, Y, and Z group, but they can be framed one way or another depending on what audience you're in. And it's all true. It's not hiding the ball. It's not lying to anyone. But it's understanding that you need to meet people where they are. And if you're in a liberal audience where they really need to feel like, I, I know something is politically good, if it helps X, Y, and Z group, then hey, I got Thanks. good news for you. It helps X, Y, and Z group. The most overrepresented population among homeless folks is trans folks. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Medicare for all is a policy that would make transition gender affirmation surgery free. Mm-hmm. Mental health care, free. Frame it however you want. But also, I'm going to go to Joe Manchin's district and be like, hey, guys, how's the opioid crisis going over here? Sure. Guess what else Medicare for All will help support? Addiction services. We got free dental hearing and vision now as a part of Medicare. You know? And that's the power of the message. And what ends up happening is liberals treat that benefit as a deficit. And they argue against universalism saying, well, it's rising tide leaves all ships. No. No. There were policies that were poorly designed in the past to explicitly exclude communities. And you have to be attentive to those kind of disparities when you're designing these policies going forward. Of course you do. And special dispensations should go to certain communities that are particularly disadvantaged, whether it's rural communities that don't have broadband and access to medical care, or black communities who should have gotten reparations. I agree with all of that. But that shouldn't mean that you don't prioritize or don't support at all, equally, equally with all these other policies, something like Medicare for all or $15 minimum wage, or pretend that those are somehow white policies, because it's not literally called the American Uplift for Hispanic Plan 2021. And when you see the circularity in the argument, oh, we got to frame everything in terms of minority groups, but also if we do so, white people won't like it, but also the country's 77% white. Because like, if you were constructing a plan a narrative that meant that nothing ever happened, that's what it would sound <laughs> that's what like we do. it's a rude <laughs> Goldberg of of counterintuitive linguistic pre presuppositions that ensure that nothing is, no one is ever persuaded of anything ever yeah.
0: so why do you think it happens?
1: Because nobody wants anything to happen because people ever.
0: don't actually want change hmm. so it's, again, it's just a aren't. distraction from
1: yeah. I'm not talking the, about regular people ever, right? Sure. Like the blame talking is not about regular voters, political the, elites who are yeah. kind of, and the media class.
0: Yeah, yeah. I certainly hope that's not the case. I mean, I think that there's my experience is that most of it is done in good faith. It's just it's because people Oof. aren't thinking at all.
1: What who's you know who are these people?
0: Well, I mean, even politicians. Like I, like I, Obama I got was friends. Such a jerk well, to well, you? yeah. Well, I mean, I think I'm talking about the local level because that's what I know sure. best. Sure. Okay. And and I think. Most people get into politics, probably get into politics for good reasons. And it's kind of like what you said about Harvard, but politics is its own little tunnel. Sure. Where you just think this is the way things are done. Sure. And it's hard to think outside of that because everyone around you is reinforcing that this is the, the way things have to be done. Sure. And and so if everyone's telling you the name of the game right now is identity and, and this is what people care about, this is what we fight about, and... It's it's important for me to to say that white racist guy in West Virginia is a racist because it's part of what we do. It's part of what we do in our club, in our tribe. I'm gonna do it. And and the incentives are such that if you if you don't say that, you're kinda kicked out of the club. So even if in theory it would be a wonderful political strategy for us to find a way to convince the white racist guy in West Virginia that, you know, just because this policy helps black people too doesn't mean you don't support it. Yeah. So it's 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 a tough thing because I, I think that there are a lot of well-meaning people who would love to explore, even just mm. explore, not even implement these sorts of counter-narratives that are not just focused on identity. Right now, we're in a place where, especially on the left, identity has become so important. And because so many people genuinely feel threatened, like in the Asian community a few months ago when these people were getting attacked. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of problems in the Asian community beyond Brutal attacks. I mean the brutal attacks were obviously horrible. And like that that piece yeah. in the New York Times where this old woman is just like yeah. savagely beaten by someone. But there are a lot of other bigger problems that frankly the Chinese community, the Asian community were facing.
4: Yeah. You know,
0: there, there's there's still a massive amount of suicide and depression among young Asian folks, and that hasn't changed. And yeah. we're not doing much to address that. But because this is the thing
1: district th- in New York City is actually Chinatown. You yeah. don't know that.
0: But these are things that were not considered salient politically at that time. And so everyone was just talking about these brutal attacks and, yeah. and the fact that Asian people are being targeted instead of some of these broader systemic issues that are affecting all of us, including Asian people. So yeah. I don't know. It's tough. I think it's really tough. And I'm probably yeah. not as cynical as you are, and maybe wrongfully so because, frankly, <laughs> you've been deeper into politics Plus, than I, I have. I don't want
1: to be cynical. In yeah. 2016, I wasn't anywhere near this this place. But look, there's there's two – there's there's one of two ways this can go. Either the Democratic Party—they're just really stupid, and they—they're not as smart as Republicans, and they just keep screwing it up. Yeah. Accidentally. Oh shucks. Why does it seem we're always like we're always losing? hmm Gosh darn. Okay, that's one possibility. Oh, they're doing their best, and they just keep screwing it up. We have the we have the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Obama had a supermajority almost, and didn't do any. Do jack shit with it. Because go, guess what? Magically. Uh, Joe Lieberman appears Mm -hmm. to be the rotating bad guy (laughs) and screw everything up, right? There's always someone who appears just in the nick of time to make sure that nothing can be done. So either the Democrats are just like, good faith failing, or it's something more insidious than that. And I'm sorry, there's only so many times I can say, oh, you just messed up. Only so many times, you know, someone can accidentally drop the bowling ball on my foot. Before I take a step back, and don't sign up to be a glutton for punishment anymore.
0: Yeah, and I don't re- think it can be both. It could be good faith and corruption at the same time. Because I mean, there's this
1: the Cory Booker phenomenon. phenomenon. Yeah, well, I call that it Cor- Cory Booker. Absolutely, we're, I we're think just... Cory Booker's a nice guy. I like the idea of Cory <laughs> yeah. Booker, and I think that Cory Booker took all that pharma money because yeah. he's in New Jersey. And wow. took some bad, made some bad positions as a consequence because when he was coming up in politics, there was no Bernie Sanders. And the presumption was you got to get your money from somewhere. Sure. And this was a gamble I could deal with. And everybody else in politics in the history of all time has done that similar gamble. Yeah, and it, it becomes but easier were- to
0: legitimately believe the pharmaceutical company's arguments when you actually do need their money. Well, right? sure.
1: I mean, I don't know how much he actually. I hope that he doesn't actually believe it. I hope he's like, "You guys are terrible people," but I'll take the money. I almost <laughs> rather him ha- have that if kind of clarity. Someone who's
0: actually duped, yeah.
1: But I think if if he were you know fifteen years younger, he would have been a squad member. He would have styled himself differently and not yeah. taken the money. But even I think squad members can become corrupted, not necessarily by donations, right? Because they all take grassroots pledges sure. and stuff. Yeah. But by the idea that they're part of something bigger, bigger yeah. that's doing the best that they can. Yeah. So truly not trying to make every podcast to go on a force of vote podcast. But the reason that was such a moment that people can't let go of is because your listeners might, might not be aware because of course the mainstream media never covered this a whit and most of the left media was against it, the institutional left media. But there was an opportunity on January 3rd to not reelect... Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: For Nancy Pelosi to be Speaker of the House for another term, it was required that everybody almost vote for her because of the narrow margins. And if four, six, or so progressives, AFC, Ilhan Omar, Mondaire Jones, pick your faves,
4: mm-hmm.
1: Rashida Tlaib, had said no, we are not voting for you, then there's no Speaker. It doesn't default to the Republican speaker, Kevin McCarthy. Nothing like that happens. You just have to have successive rounds of voting until they get a majority, Uh like above 50%. It's not a bare majority, right? So you need everybody on board. You can't just default into, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. At that time, some people figured this out on the left and said, okay, either we should oust Nancy Pelosi because she's a problem, or we can say, we'll vote for you, but only if. And just get something out of it. I don't really care what. Committee appointments, uh, knocking Richie Neal off the head of the Ways and Means Committee. By the way, right now, there's a big battle going on in Ways and Means over the uh, um, ability to negotiate uh, drug prices that's being held up. Because with one more seat on the Ways and Means Committee, which AOC didn't get, we would have had a different outcome. Okay, so this, is, this, this has real material effect, That's these kinds people. of things. Yeah. Richie, mean, uh, Richie Neal is vociferously anti-Medicare for all. It takes a ton of Big Pharma money. It's the same old story tale as old as time. And what happened was, as mounting pressure rose on the progressive left media for them to force the vote on something, A lot of people are saying for Medicare for all, force a floor vote on Medicare for all because at least then, again, you would have to get all these Democrats to come out as being against Medicare for all if that's what they're really going to do and stop hiding the ball and pretending that, oh, the Democrats really want it to be better. They just can't have it better, right? Those kind of moments could really reveal what's really going on. That's why they're important, even if you don't actually get Medicare for all out of it. But there's other things you could ask for, as I mentioned, that would be material and meaningful. And instead of doing that, they all just voted for Nancy Pelosi and got nothing. Nothing. So when things like that happened and then- AOC- So wait,
0: wait, why? Why do you think that is? Because you know, AOC was supported by The Intercept. I mean, part of the reason she was in office is because The Intercept wrote oh, such yeah. positive
1: things about her. Yeah. And Ryan Graham, my former boss and friend, uh-huh. I mean, we've already had it out over this on my podcast, so this is not me talking about him in his back. But my former boss and friend, Ryan Graham, made a lot of excuses at the time for why they were making the right decision. Huh. And said, well, they're getting stuff. They're getting a um they're getting committee appointments, which they demonstrably now after the fact did not get. Did not get, yeah. Um, that they got a Pago exemption. So Pago <laughs> I want to be really clear, I didn't know anything about politics, and I learned all of this stuff from talking to people like David Sirota. and you should subscribe to his Substack and all that stuff. But PAYGO is basically a rule that says if you have like a bill and you want to spend stuff that's going to cost money, that you have to come up with pay-fors for it, which is ridiculous. As Stephanie Kelton and other MMT people have explained, that's not how the national budget works. When we pay for military expenses, spending all of the trillions that we did in Afghanistan, there was no pay-for. It only seems to come become an issue when it's for social programs that actually help people, right? Mm-hmm. So what they did get was a limited pay, a PAYGO waiver for things that were related to the environment and – Healthcare, i think which people thought you know ryan was claiming mate you could do all of this stuff mm-hmm. which hasn't been done and it's, pro, it's it's pro forma anyway mostly you get the waiver regardless if you ask for it okay. and pago wouldn't exist but for nancy pelosi implementing it so it's a, it's a nancy problem and we're here talking about getting rid of nancy right so it's hard to come up with a reason why they wouldn't have acted the stakes were so low right it's not like holding up the covid relief bill over a $15 minimum wage there's some stakes yeah, there sure cuz what if they call your bluff and we don't get covid relief that sucks yeah. you know but that's why it's so powerful at the same time right cuz we really need covid relief but i could i could see a bigger a better argument there for why mm, i don't yeah, want to yeah, put yeah. my constituents through that yep but if nancy isn't speaker of the house yeah. like what effect does that have on anybody like who cares <laughs> truly who ca- like what Like the stakes were low except for for Nancy Pelosi, which is kind of the sweet spot. Yeah. It's low for the people but high for Pelosi, who very, very much wants to be Speaker of the House. And they didn't do it. And one of the excuses that AOC offered was that we're gonna hold out, we're gonna do this, we're gonna save our political capital for five for fifteen. Sure. Which obviously didn't happen. Didn't go
0: anywhere either. Yeah. So you think it's just kind of a a lack of recognition of their own power? And their own ability to disrupt things and create and force change. You think that's what's driving someone like AOC? Have think, you talked to her? Nope. About these things?
1: Mm-mm. No. I I would love to have her on the podcast, but I think the most charitable, the most charitable way of thinking about it, and I think that's right. I think that, I think that they she means well, and yeah. I think she thinks that you she's doing her really best. And you wrote really positively about her back in. Oh yeah, I was yeah. At the AOC beat. I read all those yeah. early articles. I was there at her. <laughs> empty election night party before anyone thought she was gonna win just sitting there sadly drinking a beer at the bar with like richard reed from (laughs) new york mag you know and then suddenly she won and the place was like crowded within minutes it was wild um you know i interviewed her at south by looking back at the interview i'm like so i'm gushing it's like so unprofessional how obviously enamored by her that i am you know this is not a personal beef I, i think that she's brilliant and charming and has an ability to connect with people that is really meaningful. Yeah, and and That's part of why I want her to use it. I, I mean, yeah. I, it's not my job. You know, she doesn't have to listen to me. I am. But um, the most charitable, I think, view of it is that Nancy Pelosi is very powerful and kind of scary mm-hmm. and sat them all down and was like, there will be consequences. Yeah, you're going to get fucked. I will strip you of all your committee appointments, hmm. which is what they did to uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right-wing crazy gun lady. Sure. But guess what? Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't seem to care she didn't go to Congress to pass legislation. She got went to Congress to stoke these culture wars yeah. that helped the Republican Party in other ways. Yeah. You know, and if AOC isn't going to get Medicare for all because it's a Biden administration and everybody's given up on any everything that Bernie believed in, you know, there's an argument that her best role could be heightening these contradictions that exist in our political sure. system. Yeah. I'm not saying I believe that or not. I'm just saying there's an argument for sure. it. And I think that she obviously feels differently. I think that she obviously feels like there's a role for her to secure specific gains for her community. And I think there's a legitimacy in that too. She was obviously very proud of getting that death benefit for her constituents um, to help pay for funerals, for instance, during COVID. That, That matters to people. Sure. You know, she has to look at people in the eye every day who are suffering from really specific proximate harms in her very low income district and deal with them and Mm -hmm, I I never want to be insensitive to that but it's also true that the stakes you know at a certain point either believe what we're saying with Bernie about how corrupt the world is and the revolutionary potential of this moment or you acquiesce to a certain kind of incrementalism that might seem better in the short term but a hundred percent is disastrous in the long term yeah and the thing that they said, why we had to vote for Joe Biden, was the environment. The environment is something that can't wait. The world is going to end. We have to act now. There is no incrementalism in climate change. Yeah. It's done. We screwed the pooch. It's here. It's happening. It's now. All those people just died in AOC's district, and those basement apartments flooded a week or two ago. You know. Sorry if you edit this a way like, to die I don't too. Yeah, no,
0: it's okay. You know.
1: I know that people don't like it when you say time things because you never know when you're going to air these things. That's all good. Sorry. (laughs) Recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a black American, I will say, and some people will accuse me of doing an ID poll, but it is what it is. I have seen how incrementalism has failed my community this whole time. And I see how every year, every cycle, there's a new constituency group that, and, and our harms kind of get grandfathered in. Yeah. And it's not an either or. It's not that we have to, you know, get rid of Trump because he's so anti-immigrant and then black people are going to suffer and then we have to choose one. No. Obviously, there was a candidate who was going to resolve both issues. Sure. But the way it's sold is that, oh, the most equipped person get... Trump, Trump out, out of office just happens of to be the person who's also going to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And voters are asked to choose between their better angels and the, and the lesser evils.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And that cycle, if it doesn't get broken, is going to cause so many more deaths and so much more travity, travesty and like so, so many more tragedies than any given Trumpian news cycle yeah. could bring. And it's, it's one of those cognitive things where it's hard to – it's like a trolley problem. It's, it, those, it's like a sunk cost and everyone's just presuming like that's the way the world mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Those people are always the people that die. Those people are always the people that suffer. Let's look at the shiny new grievance. And the shiny new grievance is real and it's sad and it's horrible. Like to your point about all the Asian Americans getting beat up. And it makes you feel callous to, to, to even frame it in these terms and it's 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 crap. But it's not a trade-off. It's yeah. not a zero-sum game, actually, in, in effect. Um, and all of politics, all of the identity politics, the right-wing identity politics, the left-wing identity politics, the goal of it is to make people feel like they are, in fact, in a zero-sum game.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. And Heather
1: McGee has written about this beautifully in her book, which I kind of feel like is called Zero-Sum or something yeah. like that. And we had her on the podcast and we talked about it because even though our politics aren't exactly the same – she has done the best research, Demos has done the best research about what kind of messaging gets through to people mm-hmm. and disrupts this, these culture wars and the zero-sum mentality. And it is a message that says the elites want to use racism and bigotry to divide, us, to divide up with the working classes and undermine us. And when if we bind together, we can fight for a better world for all of us. Yeah. It's not ignoring racism, but it's also not calling anybody racist. Mm-hmm. It's saying that racism is used as a tool to exploit us. And I have confidence in you, voter, that you are smarter than that and that we can work together to overcome it. And there have been myriad examples in history where that has worked. And then they send the military in to stop the riot or stop the you know strike or whatever and And liberals really, really want to pretend that that message doesn't work, but it a hundred percent does. Yes, yeah. They just refuse to try it, because even trying that sort of thing is called like catering to racism." Mm-hmm. You know, they demand that every Democrat stand up and say, "All of you voters are racist." Yeah. And they're like, it's totally true. I'm not like deny I think everyone's racist, to be honest. I mean, morally, you know, we all live in a racist society, blah, blah blah, all those things. But you know, we're doing politics here. We're doing persuasion. I want you to vote for me because a lot of crap is in the balance. And if I want to be president, I want to be president for the racists too. Like those people, I'm trusting, I'm asking those people to trust me with their lives and their children's lives and their pensions and their future and their retirement. And so, you know, as a humanist, I got to care about those people too. It's not that they deserve it, it's not about dessert. You know, it's not about I'm not like at the heavenly gates like sending people to heaven or hell. It's about what I it means about who I am as a person. Yeah. And what my project is and what what how I want the world to be and how I think I can persuade people and change people into being not racist, into being better people. Yeah. Into feeling like they're part of a community that actually values them and that they want to participate in.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the world's not a static place and understanding that it can change and will change and individuals can change is, is really crucial. I was talking to some sociologists at Penn over the last couple of days for the podcast actually and one of them, actually not one of the ones I didn't talk to but who is referenced in the conversation I had with Duncan Watts is Damon Santol who's written about how social wins really succeed when they show not just diversity but unexpected support. Mm. So if we're always getting the same liberals and the same... Coalitions of people of color and and blue state and kind of uh coastal cities supporting some of these initiatives, it doesn't actually create power for the movement because it's expected, you know. So it's easy to ignore and just say, all oh, right, this is kind of the typical conflict we've always had. It's when you get that white West Virginia coal miner who who might have voted for Trump in 2016 to say, you know what, I want that $15 minimum wage. Right. That's kind of the person we most need. Because once once somebody sees that, they start saying to themselves, wait a minute, I thought this was just this thing that leftists cared about. I thought this is the thing that black people cared about, but you got this white Virginia racist coal miner who voted for Trump in 2016 who's saying, no, I want to fight for 15 too." That's when everyone starts saying to themselves, oh my gosh, this change is possible. And not only is it possible, it's inevitable, because when even that coal miner, who's a racist is saying, I want to support this policy that as you said, is going to benefit black Americans immensely, probably much more than white Americans. Definitely much that's more That's when of we really create change, and I think that's a lesson that's so lost on right, and not it's just happening. leftists, but activists, because I think it is in the nature of activism to create these circles of purity where it's just like just us us not, versus not them good it's them activists.
1: saying. <laughs> that's not what good activists are doing you yeah. know the all of the brouhaha on the internet about oh I yeah. can't believe you liked this person or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know I'm, you're friends with Glenn Greenwald and that makes you a Nazi like yeah. all the things you know that gets said it's like I don't know how you expect to convince anybody if you think it's like haram to talk to Glenn Greenwald i hate to break it to you but like America's a, m- a lot more diverse than the differences between me and somebody like Glenn or yeah. Zed or whomever that is like the pariah of the week. Also, Glenn is just a really nice guy. pariah.
0: I mean, <laughs> like, I was terrified when I first met him because I see him on Twitter. And I thought, no, oh my God, if I say the wrong, he's life. totally a sweetheart. Which, you know, he could yeah, he change his Twitter behavior nice and guy. I have
1: told him this to his face. Fi- yeah. Like, he's not a sweetheart always on Twitter and I think that a lot of the interactions he has on Twitter would be benefited from talking to people in real life For and sure. I've tried to facilitate that in my own way on the show, like between him and Nathan Robinson.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But people forget And that seemed about to go this. pretty well, actually. It went great.
0: Yeah, I think they're back on reasonably good terms.
1: I think it's excellent. <laughs> yeah. I will say that there was a little thing that people used to talk about called an Obama to Trump voter, mm-hmm. which everyone seems to have forgotten about. The Obama to Trump voter, which made it so that Obama won, but then Hillary lost. Yeah. And people want to have all these conversations about racism. And I'm like, this is a moot point. Like, they're racist? Sure. They voted for Obama. Uh-huh. And by voting for Obama, Obama won. Hillary lost. Because yeah. they did not vote for Hillary, do you want that Obama to Trump voter back or not? Sure,
0: it's not some Pyrrhic victory to say we lost, but we didn't have the the racist in our coalition. I, you know, like also getting the all these Democrats are racist
1: in, too. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm really just regurgitating that same 2017 article sure. about the tiny seatcoats. But there was this chart that everyone was circulating back then that showed percentage of percentages of voters for each candidate. Mm -hmm. Trump, Bernie, Hillary, although a lot of them had the Bernie line taken off because Bernie looked better than the other two, Hmm. I will note. But there's an original one that had Trump, Bernie, Hillary. And all these questions asked of voters, like, do you think black people are intellectually inferior? Do you think that they're intrinsically violent? All of these kind of like racist tropes. And everyone was like, oh, God, see, I knew Trump voters were racist because, you know, 50% of Trump voters think black people are intellectually inferior. Hmm. I'm looking at this chart like home slice. 35% 35% of Hillary voters at the same thing. Hmm. You're trying to get me all like eked out over like 15%. It's also, like, yeah. a bunch of those Democratic voters are black and brown. Hmm. So if you take out the non white Hillary voters, are those percentages going to look very close to the Trump voter percentages? Yeah. Like, I- I'm supposed to be like, Trump is bad because 55% of his people feel the same way as 40% of Hillary's people. Like, Guys, did you just learn about racism yesterday? Like, <laughs> expecting me this—the idea of a racist—is like supposed to motivate my entire worldview. Yeah. people are racist. This is not a new variable. Trump didn't invent racism. I don't know what to tell you. Bill Clinton launched his campaign by overseeing the execution of a mentally, uh, you know, uh, I- intellectually um, low IQ is the word I'm looking for. He was like an Atkins defense client
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, in like uh, the South to show that he was going to be tough on on crime tough on black people yeah and you're you're trying to talk about racism Joe Biden eulogized the most famous American segregationist they were hmm. pals they used to go out and try to pick up girls together hmm. H- Kamala Harris tried to take him out of the race by pointing out that he's a racist and now we're all just supposed to pretend that's memory hold and they're just best buddies okay is he a racist was that material to you or was it not yeah so like i'm just i'm tired of people acting selectively like they care about racism in a big bad way i care sure but we're not curing racism tomorrow and we're not going to do it through some like election cycle sure what i can cure is a lot of black people and a lot of brown people who are struggling a lot of poor white people who are struggling too and I'm not going to pretend I don't care about them because they might have an opinion that I don't like because like, yeah. my humanism demands that I care about them intrinsically. Regardless, there are a lot of black people and a lot of brown people that I also probably disagree with and don't care for. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a little bit of a misanthrope sometimes. Sure. Don't like a lot of people, but that has nothing to do with whether or not they deserve clean water and decent housing and the ability to ha- access a quality education and free college and Medicare for all. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, because the reality is, I don't, I don't care what identity you have, there's going to be something you're wrong on, or something we disagree on. And of like, course. You look at Nicki Minaj recently, for example, on the Nikki, vaccine Nikki, thing. Nikki. You know, just, uh, identity does not, as you've put it so powerfully, does not uh, d- define us. No. And, don't
2: get the and, Barb's man
0: And now. it gives you, <laughs> and, and identity does not prevent us from making mistakes, just because no. we happen to have the same identity, or shared identity, that may be important to us, may bring us together, but doesn't absolve us from our mistakes, or eliminate the differences we probably have. So there's one last question I definitely want to ask you sure. as an animal rights activist, because um, there were a lot of animal rights protests of Bernie in 2016 and 2020. I don't know if you saw any of those or if you have any impression of them. No, I
1: don't remember. yeah about
0: them. So you know, Bernie's in a dairy state, right? And, uh. and he's sent a lot of subsidies to dairy companies over the years. And a lot of animal rights activists have said, this is a contradiction of your values. Mm. And um, I wonder what you think of, as someone who is in many ways on the margin of the established democratic party, what advice do you give other movements like the animal rights movement? Mm-hmm. There are many ways some of the more radical elements of the environmental movement in trying to make progress in the establishment when for so long you feel ignored and in silence and marginalized. I mean, what do you think yeah. is is the best thing to do?
1: The most persuasive... Kind of animal rights advocacy piece that I ever read was actually by Nathan Robinson. Huh. And I think this is the editor
0: in chief at Current Affairs, mm-hmm. at the socialist magazine that you wrote for.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, he this was many years ago. I had him on my first podcast. Uh, Someone's wrong on the internet to talk about it. Way back in the day. And I think part of the reason why the article was so persuasive was because he's like, I'm a vegan. I, I'm a vegan. This is a choice that I've made. I'm not actually asking you to be a vegan. Huh. I'm asking you to consider if you can do better than you're doing right now. Can you consume a little less? Can you, you know, it, he, the article is uh, titled something very con- like provocative, like we're doing a holocaust of animals every year or something like that, hmm. you know, intentionally provocative. But the point he was trying to make is that at some point in the future, we're going to look back at our behavior toward animals. And be horrified in the same way that we think about. I mean, I understand if it's potentially provocative and comparing all those human lives and all sure. that suffering, obviously, to animals is. I mean, he was doing what he was doing, like sure. he was getting the clicks. But you know, the point that sometimes a little historical perspective in a very short period of time can make us really aghast at how we've been in the past. Yeah. And combining that with the ask that was more limited in nature, I think made me able to accept the gravity of what we're doing wrong without right. feeling quite the pressure of judgment that like completely changed my entire life would. Sure. And really hear the argument about what animals, how animals are being treated more than I might if I knew that the consequence, you know, if, if accepting that and hearing that meant that like, I had to immediately change all my dietary behaviors. Sure. Especially because I, I don't eat gluten and it's just like a limited universe <laughs> of things I can eat already. And so like you're really going to take eggs away from me right now. Sure. So, you know, and I think persuasion is often like that. I think, you know, animal rights activists have a little bit of a reputation. Yeah, we do. You know, and I understand what it's like to be ignored and to be angry over it. But also the vegan who once shouted at me in Union Square that he wished I were dead I was like, "Well, I am also an animal, so (laughs) (laughs) this feels inconsistent." Yeah, I also wasn't even wearing any animal products. I don't know how he was so mad at me. It's not important. I just was the one who targeted that day. I don't know why.
0: Why did he? he, How did this even come up? And why are they selling? selling I was. We were taking.
1: I think because we looked frivolous. Me and my old co-host, we were taking photos in Washington Square Park for our podcast. Um, And we were like goofing around, taking photos by the fountain and stuff, and just like being silly with each other. And they were, they were like protesting, and I think that he they were like upset uh, that we so were saw separately have. I mean, it's a okay. it's a very popular public light park,
4: of, of course. Yeah, no, but
1: we weren't making light of them. Sure, but they we thought were thought near they were, them. They're interpreting they that <laughs> We were that just yeah, yeah. elsewhere taking photos. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. But you know, a lot of people have those kind of interactions with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, PETA. They, there's a reputation, and I think that one of the biggest issues that the biggest hills that the animal rights advocates face is that with so much human tragedy ongoing, a lot of folks just feel like they don't have the bandwidth or that somehow, sometimes the way animal rights advocacy is done, it does feel like it's collapsing the difference between humans and animals. And you don't have to feel like there's a difference. I know there's a philosophical worldview that all these lives are equal. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in mooting that But I would also acknowledge that most people don't feel that way. (laughs) Um, And that's like another hill to have to climb. So I think that you're going to get more sympathy if there's always a real carefulness about acknowledging the – feeling of like gravity like relative gravity between these two groups and goals and objectives and not feeling like they're pitted against each other because so much of the animal rights issues are also related to humans right absolutely all of these antibiotics and what it does to the people that are taking care of these animals and the conditions that the workers and these plants are under and breathing in all that chicken feather dust and sure. all of these things are related like the conditions that the animals in are the same conditions that these people are having mm-hmm. to work in um
0: yeah all these people dying of covid and slaughterhouses uh, absolutely yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a tragedy absolutely yeah. it's
1: we're all you know so i think tying it into those kind of humanitarian concerns yeah tying it into environmental concerns frankly it's like it's a little crappy to say you have to make people care and see how people are in, yeah. involved i get that but realistically speaking that's yeah. What advice I'd give. Well, and
0: it synergizes with your advice about the left more generally, that we have to think about things from the perspective of the audience we're talking to and yeah. and not just win the battle of identity for its own sake and say, yeah, I'm morally righteous and better than you, Yeah. But find the way to reach that white coal miner or racism. Find the way to reach that factory farm worker on the public health yeah. threats or even, the, frankly, the employment consequences yeah. of a workplace that has so much violence in it. You know. Yeah.
1: I also just want to so say that, that, that I'm not sense. saying all these coal miners are racist. <laughs> there's lovely coal <laughs> I'm miners. I'm not even saying that. Actually, you're right. There are I lot. I mean, of just smear coal miners as somehow having worse racial politics than other people. No, I got a good
0: buddy from West Virginia. He wasn't a coal miner, but he, is, he was a roofer. And he mm. probably worked for a lot of coal miners and he's actually one of the most just progressive yeah, and amazing Coal no. like, are absolutely. I just I'm, want to I'm be, sure there are. be really clear. so. I'll, I'll tell you what. What animal rights activists did do, and I'm not mm. saying I supported this because in many cases I argue against this. When folks were not getting the attention they wanted from Bernie, mm. this may actually register for you now. There are people who went naked and poured blood over themselves at Bernie rallies. Um, <laughs> they saw the Black Lives Matter protest in 2016 and tried to replicate it, and like took, just ran up on the stage and took the mic away. Uh, and stuff like that happened basically throughout the campaign. And it ultimately did get some media coverage that was reasonably positive. But I think it probably also had some of the effects that you were describing. Yeah. So I, I was and not personally – Did it change Bernie's
1: position? That's I don't the question. So. I don't think so. Because Bernie's position – I mean I don't know anything about anything. You're just telling me about this for the first time. For but sure. To your point, Bernie's position on dairy farming is because he's in a state like Vermont where dairy for farming sure. is a it's big huge. deal. It's not a personal – it's not a personal choice. choice it's not yeah. a pers- It's not a philosophical or moral position. Just like every politician, you are you are at least perceive yourself to be in these constraints, these political constraints. Yeah. So the question is, how do you lift those constraints? I think more than how do you try to pull at somebody's heartstrings. Yeah. It's never about heartstrings.
3: Yeah, it wasn't.
1: You know, if Bernie, if you figure out a way to make sure that all the dairy farmers in Verm- Vermont still voted for Bernie. Regardless of what Bernie said about the dairy industry, then he would say whatever you wanted him to say about the dairy industry. This is happening with all of these energy sector jobs, yeah. right? It's not these coal miners' fault that they're going to be put out of business yeah. by the changing energy climate, you know. And people in these states continue to advance bad energy policy because they need those votes. Yeah. So how can you decouple those things? How can you figure out how to take care of these communities and and allow them to do better, cleaner? More lucrative work, frankly, that's less dangerous to them, uh, and not be so invested in coal for coal because it's their their livelihood. Sure. Don't just be like, ah, oh, you're terrible. You're a coal miner like Hillary Clinton. did <laughs> Like that's not the point. Nobody wants any of this. I mean, I love oat milk. I'm completely ready to let go of dairy. I'm <laughs> lactose intolerant, like most people in the world who aren't from like yeah. Northern Europe or East Africa. Most uh-huh. of us can't handle it. That's true. I'm with you. <laughs> so you know. I'm ready to let it go. But like, it's not about that. Yeah. I think dairy alternatives are great. Everyone, they're delicious. It's, it's a good place to fight. But <laughs> it's not really about that, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right. So last question. What, what's next for you? I mean, what's, what's motivating you? What, what is your purpose now? I mean, you're doing the podcast. You're doing some writing.
1: Yeah, uh, Do you see
0: yourself getting back in politics? What do you really believe mm-hmm. in? And what, what is motivating you right now?
1: Um, the things I believe in haven't changed. Which means there are likely few opportunities for in politics. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bernie's a kind of a once in a generation candidate. Yeah. And I, I said this a lot, but you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't work for a campaign, especially as a spokesperson, if I didn't have, you know, like ninety nine percent agreement. Sure. So I don't have to lie. Yeah. You know, I didn't have to lie working for Bernie except for when they asked me if I would vote for me Ma- for Bloomberg. <laughs> I mean I filibustered that one. <laughs> <laughs> um so you know, I, 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 don't think of myself as a comms person. Obviously, I think of myself as like a failed lawyer. I, I, I'm not. It's weird to me that this is a profession for me now, and that I have advice that people listen to for some reason. I don't know. I, I when I wrote my first article, like opinion pieces, I was like, "There's no more fact checking. Like, how do you know that I'm right? I'm just saying stuff." Mm-hmm. This is just my intuition. I'm just saying stuff. And you just are allowing me to publish this. And I still kind of feel that way. Yeah. But I do think, honestly, my life is a constant testing of a hypothesis, of my hypothesis about how to communicate to people and how to win. When I went on the, was on the campaign trail and talking to people, that was me collecting evidence about what worked and what didn't work. You know, I'd go to a barbershop with other people in the campaign and I'd look at the faces of the women in the beauty salon when the young woman I was with brought up abortion very quickly. Like, don't you want abortion rights? Hmm. And I saw how uncomfortable it made all of these like middle-aged black women in this store, Hmm. even though I think they believed in abortion, like they, they might have had abortions, but culturally it was off putting to them that this younger woman came in and was making kind of presumptions about their reproductive needs in a way that had certain like cultural implications also for who they were. And, you know, and I file that information away. I file it all away. I file it all away. And so I hope one day to write a book, I just need to find the space and time for it. Um, Cause I do think all of these ideas need to be kind of put somewhere. we liberals who yeah. I think in good faith want it. Liberal voters who in good faith want better outcomes. I think, I think, I think might be interested in hearing some things. Um, I might join a campaign of somebody truly inspiring that I trusted came along, but I have a lot less confidence in electoral politics these days and so i'm trying to learn more about organizing and how to support labor movements because i ultimately think that's how we're going to get out of this it's going to be it's not going to be as seamless and comfortable as like a bernie sanders presidency would have been Mm -hmm. it's going to be kind of hard and it's going to get worse before it gets better yeah um and I, I want to learn more about how to help help that process along. I'm learning when I have guests on my podcast. I'm learning. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure it out.
0: Yeah, that is kind of one of the best parts of having a podcast. <laughs> you, you really do. I mean, you just you get to meet all these interesting people, have interesting perspectives, and you grow. You learn from it. It's awesome.
1: It is. I feel very lucky. I, I did a I did a summer at Science Magazine once back in. Two thousand and six. That's
0: so weird yep. <laughs> that you were writing for science. I think I did. I am remembering seeing this in your biography.
4: Now, yep, I was Maybe. a
1: rising senior. It was uh-huh. my junior summer, and I thought I wanted to be a science writer. I uh-huh. thought, oh, I could be a journalist, but that'll make a lot of money, and it's going to be a hard life, and it's not serious. And I'm a sure. serious person, so let me sure I'm a writing, science writer. There we go. That's more. Writing's I was a history of serious, science, science major. Writing, yes, yeah, yeah, this this is almost like this <laughs> just makes up for me dropping out of pre med. Yeah. so. I um, they had us do different things like in like two two week cycles during the summer, and one of the cycles was to work on this little weird audio thing that no one had ever heard of called a podcast. Oh, fascinating! <laughs> and it, there were no iPhones, right? Those didn't come uh-huh. out till two thousand and seven. There were like iPod devices you could listen uh-huh. to music uh-huh. on, but there was no iPhone, so the idea that there was like an app on your phone wasn't a thing, but. They explained it to me. It's like the radio, but you put it on iTunes and people can download this. And I was like, sure. I don't know who would do that, but fine. <laughs> and I remember loving making my little five-minute story that week. Huh. Analog. Like, stop. Play with the tape and like recording to a track and all of this stuff. I loved it. And I never thought about it again because I never imagined you could have a career Doing that. telling audio stories. Yeah. And I think it's hilarious looking back that the writing was on the wall, that I was just going to be a podcaster. That's awesome. LOL. Yeah. (laughs) That one's
0: a good example of how you never know where you're going to learn something new or or find a new path in life. Indeed. And I'm sure we'll all be very interested to see where your path will take you next, whether it's writing a book, doing some more podcasts, or joining a political campaign. Well, hey, thanks so much for chatting. This is awesome. Thank you. I learned a lot. And definitely follow the Bad Faith Podcast and – when, I'm not even going to say if, when Brianna writes her book, <laughs> you check it out because she's got one of the most unique perspectives in politics. So,
1: That's very kind of you to say Wayne. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much. Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, as much as I did. Brianna's super fucking sharp and it was, it was wonderful that she gave us the time and, um, and shared some of her thoughts. As always, I want to thank everybody who's part of this podcast, Wani Rose, the co-producer of the podcast. Priya Sahani is, is always the the champ who's editing things behind the scenes, <laughs> which I really appreciate. Um, got a bunch of other team members who have been brainstorming with me about how we can make this podcast better, including Shiloh Lofakis, who really, I mean, I, I, I feel like, Shiloh, you've been the engine of this podcast even more than me or Ronnie in recent weeks, because both of us have been busy and kind of drained, and you're the one keep keeping us going and pushing us to do better. Um, Crystal Heath provides tons of feedback and does autograms, Julie Waldrup is part of the team and runs a website. So anyways, uh, I always want to thank all of you too and stay tuned um, because we are going to be releasing some details about how you can be a little more involved in this podcast because I don't want this to be just like a typical podcast where I speak and our guests speak and you listen. I want it to be more participatory. And in particular, what I want to create is more of a web model where the ideas behind this podcast are allowing you to connect with each other in your communities. But Stay tuned for an email about that and because we will be creating kind of a two-tiered list, list where people want to be a little more engaged and, and want to learn more about the development opportunities, the personal development opportunities, want to create for people listening to this podcast. Um, we'll get an option to to sign on to a mailing list where you'll get a few more emails. So anyways, thanks to everyone for the support. If you like what you heard today, again, share it with a friend. Bye-bye.